Cognitive Rampage podcast. I'm your host, Adam Lowry. Hope you're taking care of you. Hope you're living your Cognitive Rampage. Just to let you know, the limited edition copy of The Cognitive Rampage, A Dose of Authentic Revelation, will be available on our site for limited edition, limited edition only, uh, at CognitiveRampage.com or AdamLowry.com. Um, there are not many, so um, yeah, check out the website. You'll see uh, why we're calling it the limited edition. But we talk a little bit, actually, about the book with uh, a guest I am thoroughly excited about. Dr. Bahia Maroon is a University of California Santa Cruz Ph.D., uh, in social science. Uh, she has a website called inspiringworld.com that you need to check out. Uh, she's been involved in research in social science for a decade or more. Uh, currently is the a instructor at Rollins College here in Orlando. That is a very esteemed college here in Orlando, for those of you that don't understand Rollins College. Um, she refers to herself as an amplifier and a speaker for strategic facilitation. Uh, I'm want to find out what the amplifier means for sure. Uh, but a keynote speaker uh, runs powerful workshops around uh, with the idea of inspiring and optimizing the world. And uh, for those of you that know that optimizing is what we are about at the Cognitive Rampage. So uh, it is what she is about as well. So uh, welcome, Dr. Bahia Maroon. It's really a delight to be here. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm glad you came. Um, I, I really am. You were very excited to be on the show, which excites me. Uh, we talked uh, briefly, you know, on the phone. I don't say briefly. I think we spent a half an hour yeah. chatting out front, <laughs> or when I was on the phone, anyway. But right. um, you know, I'm, I'm glad you came early. It was so hard not to just start a podcast, like when we were talking. Yeah, yeah, because there's a lot of synergy, you know, in the in the thinking and the innovating. So. Yeah, it was. It was difficult. And, you know, I say that a few times on the podcast when guests come over. Um, sometimes I, I like, all right, don't talk. Let's talk about the weather. Let's talk about, sure. you know, something dumb. But it was too hard for, you know, we we're talking about some cool things. And mm-hmm. um, for us, um, for me and you, really, we chatted about what we were going to talk about, you know, what we wanted to put down. And like we do at the Rampage, I never really have a focus um, as the guest is the focus. As you are, at least in the beginning, when I'm done running my mouth ADHD-wise, uh, it'll be all you. So, you know, for, for me, I like to crawl into the head of the guest um, and try to live your life, if you will, from beginning to where you are now, uh, and questions will come up along the way. Um, you know, and I can tell you through all the research and vetting that I did on you, I could not find your backstory. So either you got good lawyers... Or there's a something that you don't want to, you know, not put out. So what I'd like to start with is where you come from. What started it? Where are the seeds planted? Where did it grow? Where was the environmental, the parents? Like, give me the, give me the come up. You know, it really starts with dance. It starts with movement. And uh, I like to tell people that uh, I'm a poet and a dancer in my core. I'm a scientist uh, by training. And I'm an amplifier by trait. And as an amplifier, what I do is uh, I grow the greatest, um, the greatest positive impact possible, right, for organizations and individuals. And 
in order to grow impact and in order to produce the transformative moment, you have to live inside of movement. Transformation is movement. Do you know? And so um, having the spirit of dance in my core, and I've been dancing since I was three, uh, having the spirit of dance in my core makes me unafraid of the transforma- transformative power, right? Of movement, movement of your ideas, movement of your practices, right? Going from here to there, letting go of this is still, still, uh, in this exact moment, and I'm going to let that go. I'm going to be in a different moment. That's what change is. And being able to bring that sort of, you know, in, in uh, social science parlance, we would call it like a somatic experience, right? Um, but being able to bring that somatic knowing, that knowing of my body, um, that movement produces beauty, um, has translated for me as a scientist into being able to be a guide with others as they want to move, you know, from one level to another. They want to up-level their lives. They want to up-level their organizations. They want to up-level their solution to world problems. Do you know? Uh, And so being able to work with people who are extremely passionate and extremely driven, but need that guide to know I can go from here to there. I can change uh, safely and something extraordinary is going to happen. So it becomes um, a scientific exploration of choreography as a lived practice. Yeah. Wow. I think that's the second definition to living a cognitive rampage, but much more poetic and beautiful. <laughs> wow. Um, well, I'm still not going to let you skip the question of the childhood. Tell me about it. Where'd it come from? Where are the seeds of you? Where were you planted? How, what was the environment coming up? You know, where are you from? Take me all the way. Give me the full biopsychosocial on you, the, the birth to, to now. But, still, you know, take me back to the kid era, the era. I want to know where you came from. So, you know, I come out of one of the most extraordinary eras, um, I think, in the history of the United States, which is the 1970s into the 1980s. And um, the, the changes that were happening... Uh, so, so going from all of these uh, seeds of change, right, that were planted by my parents' generation in the 1950s and the 1960s. So let's try all these things. You know, let's uh, try feminism. Uh, let's try women's rights. Let's try, like, people getting divorced. You know, let's try this really strange thing called... Um, I'm going to be in a relationship with you because I love you, not because I'm obligated to you. you know, these are all social experiments. Um, my generation is one of the first generations in the United States where um, the notion of a child coming home from school and being by themselves uh, starts to become prevalent. Um, we are also one of the first generations where you know we have mainstream access uh, to guns everywhere, all over the place. We're also one of the first generations where, you know, access to drugs everywhere, all over the place, you know, and uh, for people who are interested in drug history, that has to do the Golden Triangle, the Vietnam War, and so on. I'm not going to go into the blowback uh, theories, but um, it was a radically different time to the, to the degree that all of these experiments that had gotten started um, were rooted and seeded and they were starting to sprout. And that's my group of people. 
you know and uh you know in a sense um not in a sort of arrogant way but in a kind of lived and organic way uh, i end up in the vanguard of that group to the extent that uh, i'm one of the first generations of legal um, interracial children in the united states a lot of folks don't know that um, uh, it was illegal for a people of different colors to be married um, our segregation laws in the united states are you know so intense that uh, it was illegal for a person in a predominantly white neighborhood who owned a house to sell that house to a black person was in the deed that you could not do that. So you could imagine uh, that's not okay with marriage either. And so my parents were a part of a very, you know, a new teeny tiny brave group of folks who um, decided to give love a try. Um, Which is a really uh, tough spot to grow up in um, because there were black people and there were white people mm-hmm. and uh, there were like no interracial people. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that cross culture, we had a conversation. Um, I had Ronnie Hawkins on the show. Uh, we had a pretty un PC racial discussion. And part of our discussion was about um, culture, interracial marriage, etc. And he was a proud defender of the black culture. And, uh, we started talking and I said, you know, we were playing both sides too. We, he would speak. I would be devil's advocate. We had to talk about what people say. And so I said, I, I mentioned the question that how, how can you hold on to your black culture fully? If you look over a hundred, a thousand years, if we, if there's interracial marriage, right. And cultures couldn't, wouldn't they dilute over time just because. So are you okay with interracial marriage? Is that fine? And he's like, yeah, of course. Right. And I said, but doesn't that dilute your whole vision of protecting a culture, right? And I know I'm definitely generalizing and overstating the sides, but I look at it a hundred years, a thousand years, right? Wow. That became the argument, if you will, right, is losing culture by doing so. And I just, I ask that because I'd like to hear your response to that thought or that ponder, if you will, that's whether it's coming from a real racial side or racist people, or that's just what some people say, right, on both sides. And there's black culture, too, that's not okay with Marian white side either. I mean, Mm -hmm. that exists, too, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what what would be a response for you? How do you see that about a dilution of culture? Is that even real? Um, obviously it's a racist statement, but this is what I hear a lot of racist things and read, you know, that, that kind of stuff. So I think, you know, really, uh, the most important thing uh, for people to, uh, start trying to understand is that uh, there's no such thing as race, right? So race is this really, um, interesting a concept social construct that we created it's a social construction and this social construction emerges um you could say uh in europe in the 16th century it emerges in the united states um in the 17th century and in both instances it emerges in very close proximity uh, to the um rise of this really extraordinary fascinating new concept called capitalism and it, it race emerges in relationship to the construction of a social class. Now, before we have race and before we have class, um, we have social uh, we have social caste, uh, we have social status, 
And social status is based on your lineage. It's like, you know, who's your mama? Who's your granddaddy? Uh, where do you come from in that sense? And it's, so a, a lineage is a story that you know about your people. And a race is a, a telling and an assumption that others make about you because of something that they see on your skin. Yes. And, you know, the really fascinating thing uh, about race is we get a little preoccupied in the United States with the notion that we um, are, you know, the beginning and the end of the manufacturers of race and racial categories. Race is a construct to the degree that, you know, if I go to Brazil, I'm no longer black. Okay. I'm part of a different racial category because of my brownness. Yeah. Uh, if I go to North Africa and I call myself black, people will say, you know, you're not black again because of my brownness. If I go to South Africa, again, I am not black. Uh, in South Africa, I would be very specifically, um, if I'm remembering this correctly, referred to as colored, specifically meaning um, that I have a parent who is black and a parent who is uh, white. Yeah. And so these, these constructions, I'm black, you're white, I'm, uh, you know, Hispanic, we could speak of as an ethnicity. Red. Judaism, we, got... we could speak of as an ethnicity. A Native American, again, we could speak of as an ethnicity. Mm -hmm. And we have, we have a, a mapping for ethnicities, but there's no mapping for race. I can't, you know, tap into my bloodstream and be like, I'm part white. I'm part, you know, my blood does not tell that story and neither does yours. You know, it's really fantastic. Just our skin. Your skin and your skin is, you know, really um, a matter of happenstance. It has to do, uh, you know, with your, your uh, phenotypical um, presentation. Uh, it's, it's nothing more than a construct, and we have staked a lot of identity politics around this construct. And I think that one of the most exciting things that we're looking at uh, as a species, right, uh, in the 21st century, is we're looking at the, the possibility that somewhere over the next few hundred years, there may be societies where um, race is no longer a construct, we are not there. This is not post-race America. You know, right. it's like all hail to the chief. A black man did get elected. Okay, that's true. But we're still not in a post-race America. We have quite a bit of work to do. But when we start having honest conversations, when we start saying, this is about my belief, my identity, these are about choices that I'm making, um, these are about values that I have, those are honest conversations. Uh instead of conversations with a flawed premise to begin with it's because you're white it's because you're black you know when we stop having conversations based on flawed premises uh, to begin with um, and start moving through some of the painful histories and start hearing the painful histories then we we have some opportunities ahead of us you know and for me as someone who grew up brown at a moment where, uh, you know, the construction of race was very salient, you know, it holds a very, very deep. Um, and so surrounded by black folks. Where were you? North, south? By white folks. I was in the north. Okay. I grew up in New York State. Okay. Um, to be so 
intensely other, you know, to be so intensely other. Uh, I had this, you know, fantastic opportunity um, in the 90s to participate in a conference in Berlin uh, called Loving the Alien, which, you know, all hail to David Bowie, uh, comes out of um, his music. And so it's this uh, mashing up, right, of the sonic and the theoretical and the racial and the constructs and the histories. And, uh, you know, what does it mean to be an African in Berlin? Uh, what does it mean to be uh, a brown girl uh, surrounded by white people on the one side and black people on the other side and all people, you know, saying like, I'm not quite sure what you are. You know, when I was growing up, it was very common for folks to say, what are you? What are you? You know? God, and they don't even realize what they're saying, you know? I, even like when we discuss the race, like you just explained that, I, I thank you for the delivery of that competence to the the level that it parts some seas of uh, social constructs and, and gets down to those roots. I, I do, and I've said many times on the podcast, I, I feel like the younger generations are splitting that atom, if you will, that they're deleting that slowly. You know, it's filtering. It seems like the old Reich is still hanging on with the Donald Trumps out there, you know, as if like it's their last thread, you know, they're, they're willing to go as far as they will, you know, but I think they are in the minority. Um, we talked on the podcast where I talked about the majority of the United States being racist at some point, um, whether it's not just black or white, you know, I mean, there's Latino issues, all kinds of things. And, you know, I marinated on that for a while. And when I came up with that number, I don't think I was factoring in the kids. I don't think I was factoring in the children, the teenagers, the ones that are a new generation. And how dare I? And so I would say if you factor in that younger, like my daughter who's 16, and that generation, they really don't see that that much. You know, and that's even down here in the South, you know? You know, I mean, I'm going to actually push back on that and say that that's, that's really not what I see. Okay. Um, I, I see, I see a desire on the one hand to move past. I really, that, that is very genuine. And I also see uh, to move past racism. And I also see, um, an openness, um, to, uh, just, you know, interracial groups, you know, uh, but on the other hand, uh, you know, when we start saying things, and this is part of what I see a, a good bit of in the millennial generation is, you know, if we would just stop talking about race, it uh, would go away. Right. You hear and that a lot. Yeah. As anyone who has ever had like a wounded family history, you know, we don't get over wounds uh, by pretending that there was never a wound there. And sometimes in order to get over wounds, we have to open them back up, which is exceptionally painful. It's a difficult kind of work to do. Um, but the listening needs to start happening, you know, on all sides. And, and you mentioned uh, Rollins, uh, which is a place that, you know, I'm very honored to be an instructor. I also do quite a bit of work at their uh, Edith Bush Institute of uh, Philanthropy and Nonprofit Leadership. And uh, Rollins, just uh, under the guidance of their uh, phenomenally uh, progressive new president, um, had a summit day um, where they invited the students, the faculty, the administration, the staff uh, to come and, and sit in on a variety of, you know, effectively teach-ins um, and to to have these conversations about race um, together. And, you know, so, so 
there's a lot of work to do. There's, there's a tremendous amount of work to do. Um, what do you see in the generation? Do you see that? Well, you talked about a push or, or a, uh, you know, you see the, a wanting to, right? A desire to. But do you see opposite? Do you see it spreading? Because I also come, as I'm going to look at sexuality when, or gender too. When you say it spreading, you're talking about racism? Or I, I said like if they were diluting it, right? Like I was mentioning the younger generation seemed to be wanting to fight it and it, as if it's going away almost. Um, and you talked about talking about it. Like you see it more on social media with the, the cop issues, et cetera. You see a lot of that more. Um, and a lot of people would say you only see a lot of that more because the internet exists. And so it appears as if it's, uh, just more prevalent, like mm-hmm. even kids fighting their teachers, et cetera. And, you know, sure, maybe, you know, autism, it works that way, right? It's not like autism rates have increased. It's just the awareness and the spectrums have widened. And so that same idea I would play into the racial divide or even gender, because as a counselor, um, recently I was seeing a lot of teenagers. Grab my jacket, you're freezing me out. Oh, it's usually really hot in the cave. Honestly, it's usually really hot in here. Um, what's up? Oh, you know what? We didn't cut on the overhead. That's why. Um, but, uh, I was seeing a lot of gender separation even, right? Um, there's what are there 14 different now transgender, transsexual. And I was counseling a lot of teenagers, transsexual, transgender. Some I had, I had to research, you know, that I hadn't heard. And I mean, there's even in some of these Ivy league schools on these college campuses, they talk about, um, you know, not using the word crazy even anymore as being a microaggression. And, um, you know, what were some of the other things about, um, using Zay, you know, the, the Z, um, the Z hyphen or whatever in the front, no more he, she, or they, Zay, you know, so you're starting to see this, excuse me, this delusion, this dilution of even gender almost, right? As if everything's kind of acceptable and okay in that younger generation, a lot of those clients I was seeing were having issues with the older generation of their acceptance, not at school. It was their parents. It was the aunts, the grandmas. It was that they had great friends at school that they'd already come out to. They had already found their social group mm-hmm. and felt safe, but it was the parents, you know? And so I wonder how, what do you see that makes you say that it's not diluting over time that actually maybe, cause the pushback was like, I almost want to say, is it getting worse? Is that what you were meaning? Is it actually the generations are getting more divided or are they really diluting the idea of, of race and creating a culture, if you will, a globalization, I don't know. Well, I think that we want to keep in mind, right, that there's um, constructing stories about the other. Okay. And, uh, you know, I have lived in some really, like, uh, incredibly liberal leftist environments, um, where things that, you know, would make a Baptist just pass out on a <laughs> Sunday morning, you yeah, know. Yeah, sorry. Uh, we keep kicking each are other. completely normalized, you know. And what I have seen um, in my experience is that uh, a judgment is a judgment is a judgment is a judgment. So right now in the United States, I think that we want to start um, kind of imagining, frankly, uh, that we're shedding some of our judgment because we have different sectors of our society uh, that are opening up to um, 
maybe sexuality expressions or racial expressions um, that were at one time unacceptable, right? So at one time, my parents could not have gotten married, right? right and right. so now they can be married. Interracial marriage is fine. Uh, and so then we want to say, like, our society as a collective, like, we're shedding judgment. We need to be really cautious about owning the realities of change and understanding are we really in the midst of change or are we shifting the other place that we put judgment because it's extremely different to say i accept you as you are without judgment be you transgendered be you queer be you asexual be you uh you know as we used to say with my collective negro uh be you oh, now they call it african american now you know black what's um, what is accepted is it do I is accepted it accepted term? Right. What's the accepted term? Is it black? Is it African American? Or is it just human? Uh, I you know it really I think what's depends the what's on the, the point? Individuals. Right. You know, lots of folks like to use African American. It's part of the census right now. I've been um, told not to do that. I've had people say, "Don't call me African American. I'm, I'm I was born here." You know, so I I'm just asking you if anybody's going to know. It's going to be a social scientist right now. That's of of what's on the. I mean, as a social scientist, my training is to say that we have to always ask individuals how they want to be referred to. And some folks do want to be referred to as a human being. You know, yeah, I right. am a human being. Other people really want to hold their race because it's it's an important uh, cultural expression for them. Right. Uh, like the first black president. Like, why is that important to, to note? Why can't he just be the president? Right. But he's first. Will there be a second black president that will have to refer to him as the second black president? Why not just whatever number president he is? Well, we've made uh, astonishing strides when uh, that's no longer relevant. But the reality is that today, you know, it is relevant. Right. Uh, and that's why I look at the use of it. Is, sorry, I, I just I, I want to further my, my ideas that that use of it is. We can say that the person is a race, a color, a culture when it's denoting something amazing or great that's been accomplished. But in any other sense, that's not okay. Or we need to leave it out. Right? And I'm only having the tough conversation. And I'm, I say this stuff that's difficult to what a lot of people think, you know, and or well, <laughs> love I mean, to chat. I don't, I don't see it as a tough conversation. Good. You know, I good, see good. it as um, it's part of the work that each one of us has to do and uh, you know this what I was saying before about the judgment is uh, whatever identity it is that you have walked into and it works for you um, I like how you said that that you've walked into I like that because you you do the next step is uh, your capacity to allow the person next to you to have walked into their identity and do you have the ability to hear them you know what I uh, most appreciate about where I come from, uh, and I don't mean a, a geographic place, I mean, you know, a life story, uh, a life story that um, has been othered in so many ways. You know, being able to sit outside, being able to be the other, um, being able to be the uh, alien, as it were, um, being willing to encounter the uncomfortability that comes with that and start opening up to the possibility of other people's uncomfortability, you know, without assumptions. And uh, it's made it possible for me to sit and have the most fascinating conversations with people whose identity, um, you know, is not an identity I'm going to walk into. 
right? I'm not going to become a card-carrying member of the NRA. I'm not going to become a, a member of a, a deeply rooted Southern white family. That's not part of my tradition. Um, I don't have any experience with having members of my family who are comfortable with extremely racist views. But I can sit down and be comfortable having a conversation with someone who does have that identity. And I can hear their stories. I can welcome, you know, this opportunity to understand like a different life experience, different cultural experience um, than one that I happen to choose to live for myself and a different story than the history that I have. But because I have a different identity than someone, and this is what when we drop the judgment and drop the assumption and you could start to hear people and if we can take this thing that we need to do in our interpersonal relationships you you need to do this thing in your family you need to do this thing at work which is actually listen to people right instead of while you're talking i'm getting ready to tell you what i do and do not agree with I'm getting ready to tell you my own story, right? It, it, all these other things. When we start to practice that personally, practice it with the people in your family, practice it with the people in your workspace, practice it with the people in your school space, you know, then when you're sitting down and you're having this engagement with someone who is, you know, you just want to say to them, how do you really believe all of that, Jack? You know, mm-hmm. how do you really have that point of view? You, instead of trying to, walk into a debate, you're not changing anyone's mind. Right, you're, right. You know, so instead of walking into a debate that's not going to transform anything, you can just actually be open and receptive to hearing somebody else's story, you know, to hearing someone else's history, their their values, their belief system. It doesn't, you know, being willing to not judge someone else's belief system and values doesn't mean you're going to lose your own. That's where many of us fall short is, you know, I did a video uh, people could look up called Enforcing Beliefs, and we all tend to enforce our own beliefs. Generally, if you find yourself being defensive or offensive to something, for the more than likely, that belief has challenged a value of yours quickly. And generally, we respond to things we don't understand, like I said, defensively or offensively, because we've been challenged. You know, what we believe has been challenged or what values us has been challenged. And a lot of people, I don't think, can face that. It's easier to say they're the issue, they're the problem. You know, how could they believe this way or how could they live that way? But I think what you're talking about is really maybe what we're talking is is seeing that you're seeing a more honest conversation maybe happen. Yes, we're certainly, you know, as a nation, we are certainly starting to open up to having a more honest conversation. And people may be confusing that. The, you know, the, the invitation of this moment in this political season the invitation that we have as individuals is uh you know drawing on the language of pema chodron uh, who's a remarkable a buddhist monk nun uh, here teaching uh, for us in the united states drawing on pema chodron's language we have an invitation right now to be provoked every single day and to not bite the hook Right. This is the language that she uses. Don't bite the hook, uh, which actually comes from a much, much older uh, monk, Ashanti Deva. Don't bite the hook. What does that mean? It means that 
you may have an extremely deeply held a political position um, that you're going to vote for Bernie Sanders, right? And uh, all Trump supporters are insane. And you may have a deeply held political position. You're going to vote for Hillary Clinton. Um, and uh, the Bernie Sanders supporters are, uh, you know, threatening uh, the candidacy of a viable candidate. And also Trump is insane, right? <laughs> Uh, you may hold the position that a Donald Trump is uh, the next possible greatest hope for uh, the economy of the United States, that he as a businessman may have the capacity to uh, turn this ship around, right? You may hold that a position. Um, and if you do, you're probably really likely uh, to have a really, really negative position towards Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, right? And so when you meet the other supporter. What is it that you want to do? You want to bite the hook. You want to tell them exactly what you think of their candidate and why their candidate is this, right? When you meet other people in your crew, right, the other Hillary supporters, other Trump supporters, other Bernie supporters, crews, whatever it is, when you meet the people in your group, what do you want to do? You want to sit around and you talk smack, right, about the other side. You yeah. talk how wonderful your candidate is. You say a whole bunch of things. If, as individuals, we would consider pausing and entertain the possibility that each one of these candidates is actually a human being, each one of these candidates is just a person. And so when you are throwing this vitriolic, nasty, hateful, ugly commentary out, you're actually just talking about a human being and you may not like what they stand for and you may not want to vote for them and you may not like the system that they represent and so on. You can, you are entitled to all of that, but you can also, while holding your, you know, appreciation for your candidate and your position and so forth, you can also take this political season as the opportunity to start training yourself as an individual to stop biting the hook and giving into participating in a kind of judgmental, angry, nasty, hateful, hurtful form of speech that does nothing but oppress our opportunity as a nation to gather the momentum that we need as a society in order to enter into a space of non-judgmental living where we can actually focus our effort and our time and our energy on solving problems that need to be solved and living in a collective manner that balances out the needs of all and focuses attention on each individual person and every community and every region entering into a state of balanced well being and optimization. So, you know, you look at these enormous problems in the world, in your community, in your neighborhood, and you say, how can I, right? How can I do anything to solve these problems? How can I? It's so enormous. Take a teeny tiny step as an individual and don't bite the hook when you have every reason and every justification and every invitation to go spitting out this hateful, hurtful, nasty speech because the other person is wrong. The other person is obviously 
crazy, right? Non-PC language. The other person is obviously, and then fill in all of the blanks, you know. Um, if we can take this opportunity of this very, very intense, very provocative political season to start in a deep, it's a depersonalized thing. You know, it's not your mother. It's not your father. It's a political candidate, you know. And so it's depersonalized. Take the opportunity to start disciplining and training yourself to not bite the hook, right, of this violent, negative, unkind speech towards someone else because you think it's justified. Because learning how to act and live and exist in a state of well-being requires disciplining yourself into a space where you're not judging anymore. And it's a disciplined action. It takes work, it takes training, it takes practice. Well, aren't people fighting a primal instinct or evolution that human beings have felt since our conceptualization to, well, one, I, I think most humans, unless they're narcissists or psychopaths, have a desire to be loved and accepted. And when that's not met, whether it's a personal, individual, social level, that's when we begin our hurt, our fear, our assumptions and expectations that lead us right to anger. And most people skip right by the hurt and the fear and stick to their assumptions, expectations, and, well, stay angry. All because they don't receive that love and acceptance, you know. And at our conception, we had to form these social groups for survival. Otherwise, we didn't make it. You know, we were smaller. We were like, what, 15th on the food chain? So we had to do mass numbers and work together. And so for the social group or that social acceptance mixed with that desire for love and acceptance, aren't people facing a lifetime of evolution and instinctual development to associate with like-minded groups for some sort of survival? And nowadays, it's not monsters or other animals, it's social survival. And so we link to these groups for some sort of love and acceptance that we feel. And so as we ask people to entertain not biting the hook, Aren't we asking people to ignore a primal evolution of acceptance to be involved in something and connected to something and have an opposition? Oh, my. <laughs> I, figured, I figured that opened Pandora's box for you. So there's so much in there. Um, I want to, you know, I want to engage uh, this question about evolution and its relationship to our uh, contemporary behaviors. But before I do... Um, so I'm going to come there. I'm going to come back there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but before I do, I just want to touch uh, on the um, counterpoint example, right, which was a reference to folks in the cluster B, a personality disorder. So these are people who have uh, narcissistic. Psychopath narcissistic. Yeah. Right, narcissistic personality disorder, antisocial personality Actually, disorder. Actually, a narcissist would love the love and acceptance and need that, but would think they own it already anyway. So it's not almost a desire for it as this, as if I'm owed it. To a sense. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I could be a little off there. Um, well, you know, even more than kind of the specificities of the diagnosis, it's just an opportunity to, um, again, you know, and keeping in mind that uh, Vanity Fair actually has just uh, come out with a publication. Some uh, folks have broken from the American Psyche Psychiatric Association's uh, guidelines. Um, and they've uh, diagnosed uh, Donald Trump with narcissistic personality disorder. Um, so, you know, it's a really apropos, uh, topic. Um, and you know, what I always invite people, uh, to keep in mind with all 
diagnostics, right? Is that um, the diagnostic manual is less than, right, a uh, hundred years old. Um, it's entirely completely socially constructed and we want to keep in mind that the, the great majority of disorders disorders disorder uh, that are um, represented in the manual the counterpart is always normative behavior right which normative, is so subjective normative social behavior and um, so we just kind of the, the diagnostic manual can be extremely useful uh, can be very helpful. Uh, we could think of it as, you know, what we call like a heuristic, uh, you know, a teaching tool. Um, but always just, um, I always encourage people to be very uh, cautious uh, with these um, different labels that uh, that we acquire from that manual. Um, someone's uh, cold and unfeeling um, as an abnormal behavior is a cold and unfeeling as a necessary survival of behavior. Again, you know, dependent upon the context. And the last thing I'm going to say about that is, um, you know, when we're kind of uh, trying to figure out the answer to these sort of questions, as is often the case, um, our best um, representative of how to think about these things is actually uh, in literature and um Joseph, is it Joseph Heller? Yes, I think it's Joseph Heller. A Catch-22 asks us to think about this question of, you know, what is sane? What is normal? Uh, what is normative? Um, when you have a social context that has gone insane, right? And so this book is specifically set um, in the context of war. And if you're in the context of war, is it reasonable for you to uh, be very sad every time you see someone pass away, or is that threatening to your own life? And you know which person, and he lays out a series of characters and their responses to the state of warfare, and then basically asks the question, you know, which of these people is insane, right? So it's this um, back and forth, you know, society is what Borgia, uh, Pierre Borgia is a really uh, fun uh, social theorist uh, out of France, um, structuring structures, you know, we're living in a, the society structures, um, our everyday life, these structuring structures. We just want to keep in mind that the opportunity of being human the extraordinary nature of being human is that all of our structuring structures are made up. This is all imaginary. It is, we exist. I'm sitting in this chair, you know, talking into a microphone. This amazing technology uh, because folks imagined a different kind of structure, a different kind of possibility. And at the same time, we really want to grab hold of that, right, in order to be able to ideate and innovate, come up with these just amazing new ideas and amazing new ways of doing things. Uh, we also have to keep in mind this really simple statement. Nothing has to be the way that it is. Nothing has to be the way that it is. Now, Certainly, when we start talking about religion and we start talking about certain kinds of belief systems, 
um, that becomes a, a very complicated conversation, right? Uh, but when we think about the everydayness, nothing has to be the way that it is. It is that way because someone imagined it. And it's also that way because we as human beings love familiarity. So it gets imagined, it gets normalized, and uh, we kind of keep rolling with it. You know, why does a chair look the way that a chair looks? Why do you eat with a fork that has a certain a number of uh, things on it? You know, why is the word considered bad? You know, so these <laughs> structuring structures, we, we want to really kind of... Um, start harnessing the power of being human which is recognizing that our imagining is what makes everything in our everyday life possible um so going back into the question of uh, evolution this is uh you know it's relatively um it's very provocative. It's very interesting uh, to think about, you know, um, the clan, which is the extended tribe, right? So when you have a clan, you have multiple tribes within the clan. Um, and uh, just, you know, for folks who are really unfamiliar, like with kinship studies and so forth, a kind of, I, I'm going to get a whole bunch of uh, hate uh, from people who actually do kinship studies about this analogy. But uh, you could think of it as, you know, the United States would be the clan and then the tribes are the states within. Right. Um, That's how the native people were organized for uh, for the most part. Your six nations that would gather under the different tribes of the regions. Well, some some of them, some, some of them, some would Parti not participate. Particularly in the north, well, in the northeastern tribes, um, we see some forms of confederacy, um, forms of uh, nation state, um, like uh, or I should say nation, like Iroquois uh, and yeah, nation like Iroquois. You see that separation a lot, right? Iroquois Sioux. Um, I'm trying to think of the Six Nations. I used to know them right off rip. But Iroquois, Sioux, Cherokee, uh, Apache, which used to be was a break off of Cherokee and Apache. Now I'm testing myself, but sorry, keep going. Uh, so, so the the clan and the tribe um, can be a useful way to think about other right and 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 difference. Um, and we we're um, we're kind of. Uh, um, provoked into uh, wanting to look at these experiences that we have in modern humanity. And, you know, modern humanity is like a couple of hundred years is modernity. Uh, so, um, so we want to look at these experiences of modernity, particularly thinking about, you know, the time since writing has uh, begun. Uh, and then we sort of want to extrapolate and say um, these, you know, yearnings for you look like me, I look like you. Uh, let's be part of a group. These yearnings for you think like me, I think like you, uh, let's be part of a group. And then we want to extrapolate and we want to say like this has something to do with the everness um, of human uh, existence. And we, we can't make those extrapolations. In fact, the extrapolations that we can make are really absolutely to the contrary, you know. So when you, you think about, you know, our species, this is a really remarkable species, um, you know, the earth is here like four and a half billion years. Um, primates come along um, maybe about 55 a million years ago. Um, you have, you know, the, the first grouping of primates comes into uh, being. 
and uh, slowly, 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 you know, we go through the Australopithecus and we enter into the, you know, the Homo group. And so we've got Homo floresiensis, Homo heidel. Uh, I can never pronounce the Germans. Oh, they gave our fossils the names. Um, the the handyman, you know, Homo habilis. So so we're having our evolution happen, and then uh, you know, Neanderthalus, yes, and then we get uh, Homo sapiens sapien about two hundred thousand years ago. That's right. You know, and uh, so here we have this species two hundred thousand years ago. What makes it possible for this species, you know, in the midst of all of these different kinds of threats? What makes it possible for this species to survive? And there's no way that we can take our contemporary human understanding of what it takes to survive and apply that uh, to our species 200,000 years ago. And I would argue that when we do that, we actually set up a picture that would have resulted in our demise. When you start thinking about how few of us there were mm-hmm. uh, in relationship to, because the um, the groupings are not independent, so it's not like a linear right. um, progression. Um, I believe it's Stephen Gould who came up with punctuated equilibrium, right? Um, so this notion of sort of like evolving in spurts and moments, and um, so. So there are other competitors, mm-hmm. you know, who can be doing very well. If we're... Now, at the time, right, it was the Homo sapien and Neanderthal competing towards the end for the majority. Am I... Is that history correct? Well, again, I mean, the notion of competition, uh, even that uh, can be questionable, you know. Sure. Uh, one of the things that uh, I love about uh, Darwin's origin of the species is that... Um, the most frequently repeated word in that book is love. And we often um, refer to, you know, it's become part of the like popular lexicon, um, survival of the fittest. And um, we have decided to apply um, modern uh, economics and uh, modern nationalism to uh, fill in what we mean by the fittest. In terms of evolution, this is incorrect. The fittest in terms of human evolution is um, better thought of in terms of those who have the capacity for compassion. The emergence of human culture is noted in trade. And what do we have to do? What do you have to do in order to be able to trade? You have to be open to the other. You can't trade with someone that you're trying to kill and you can't trade with someone that you're running away from or that you're frightened of. You're trading. This is about 140,000 years ago when trade, you know, emerges. You're trading with someone um, who you are willing to have a conversational exchange with, who you are willing to have a cultural exchange with, right? That couldn't be an acceptance of this person helps me defend my life as a group. It certainly can be, you know, and I'm not suggesting that competition, violence, and so forth doesn't all, and clashing and warfare, this is all part of the human record. Absolutely. Well, I meant more teaming up because what I say is I think sometimes people connect in fear 
more than they do love. And love potentially could be a social construct that we've designed in a way. And couldn't it the idea of I trade with you because I know I, we got a band together if something happens, say another tribe, another clan maybe, if a larger one appears, or even just animals, you know, that we are together a weapon of defense for each other that happens to kind of like, you know, what was it? Was it a rock or a stick when we first figured it out that we had weapons? Did we throw something and go, oh, shit. You know, did we pick up a stick and hit, you know, and stab something or whatever, use it as, you know. And so did we see each other as a tool? And so, I mean, we kind of speak to the idea that there's no intrinsic motivation, that for the most part we're extrinsically motivated for selfish and ulterior motives. Um, Dr. Bobby Hoffman actually covered a lot of that. And <clears throat> Well, you know, again, <coughs> the me. caution is to understand that that, is never anything more than a theory. Right. You know, the, so um, motivation, you know, are we intrinsically, internally, you know, motivated? Are we extrinsically, uh, externally motivated? So two things that you have to always have on the table uh, when you're doing science and you're doing responsible science, the first thing is... Um, this is nothing more than an idea. It's nothing more than a theory. The, the, you know, the, the delightful part of a science having to you know, enter into textbooks and all these other things is that it starts leading people into this you know, really false and incorrect notion that there are facts and there are not facts. There are theories right, right. that we've got a lot of great supporting information for, and these are ideas. Um, very often, uh, this is one of the things that we can really appreciate the work of uh, Bruno Latour um, and Thomas Kuhn, uh, both kind of burst open, what does it mean to create scientific knowing, scientific knowledge? We have to start with the fact that your very question, the very question that you choose to ask of science is socially informed. It's socially constructed. Right. It exists because of the society that you come from. You're exploring those particular questions, motivation. You know, the question of motivation. Why do we need to study motivation? It's really important in post-industrial societies. Motivation was also very important in industrial societies. So, yeah, we want to study it. You know, we want to hang out with uh, the grandfather of all these uh, conversations, Abraham Maslow. You know, what motivates us? What do we need as human beings? But again, we want to understand that these are um, explorations. For sure. Um, and so going back to the the evolution, you know, and the degree to which we have these so-called primal instincts and so forth, I would love for people um, to really focus on getting in touch with their body and their physiology and their humanity, their physical humanity, um, at like a lived everyday level beyond the theories. Do you know, we love uh, culturally, society, you know, we want to talk about evolution, we want to talk about primal instinct and what is and isn't instinctive and, you know, all these things. But actually, what we really need to do is to focus on our body in the present right here and right now because you know, we can talk all day, every day about primal instinct and so forth, but the role of the body, it's, 
you know, stop clock physiological mechanisms, we still socially undermine that, not at all ironically, uh, in the service of science, scientific fact, things of evidence, right? So a great example of this is, I have a, a feeling, right? Malcolm Gladwell uh, refers to this as like the thin slicing blink effect. Uh, I have a instant feeling um, that something is wrong or something should change or something should happen. What are we trained to do? Feel. We No, we're trained to look for the evidence. Oh, scientists, the, I'm the, sorry. The I was... justification, the uh, explanation to undermine the body. So it's, it's something of an irony, you know, in the society that we live in where um, we love to talk about primal instincts and we love to talk about, you know, um, man and, you know, his and her original forms and, you know, what came out of our earliest days that we just can't get around uh, because it's part of our body, etc. But then we, uh, as a society... We devalue our body as an instrument of knowing. Mm -hmm. You know, if I said to somebody, like, what do you think with? Yeah, my brain, my body. Most people will say my brain. Yeah. And if I say, do you think with your body? Most people will say, no, I think with my brain. You know, we don't see the body and the brain. (laughs) It's the same, right, right. It is my body, correct. We don't see these things as connected, you know. And so... Um, you know, the, what I would say about evolution is, first of all, it certainly is not my a specialty. Um, you know, having a background in anthropology, um, I'm, you know, very privileged to have a, a pretty clear sense of our human history. You know, so we get the Neolithic era, 10,000 years, and we get the, you know, agricultural revolution and so forth. Um, and, and it's extremely helpful for me to have that sense uh, of human history. And then it's about uh, entering into the present day and trying to understand our simple humanity in this present moment, you know. And we're living in an extraordinary moment. We as a species, uh, we've been here for 200,000 years, uh, if one believes in theories of evolution. Um, So we've been here for 200,000 years. And if you put that on a football field, you get, what is a football field like? A, 100 yards. Okay, so you get it like 100 yards on a football field, okay? The um, Industrial Revolution is about, you know, 200 and maybe 250, 250 years. So in all of humanity's existence, so 200,000 years, so we're on a football field, humanity is 100 yards our industrial revolution experience at the time of the industrial revolution is three inches. It's three and a half inches on the football field. Then we come into, so we've got, you know, you talk about the body. We've got all of these physical knowings, these bodily impressed ways of thinking and doing and understanding our environments, right? For 200,000 years, these ways of considering ourselves as beings in the world. And then we have three inches out of 100 yards. We've got three inches of, I need you to get up mm-hmm. and uh, be ready for school and be ready for work. And I need to take the kids to school. I need to take the kids at work. You know, this is like three inches of human history. 
And then we throw this incredible thing. I'm from the Atari generation. Yeah, yeah my so brother. I'm I got still, a brother yeah. eight years older than me, so I played it too. Yeah. Uh, so I'm still, you know, deeply impressed with uh, computers and smartphones, you know, everywhere. We had a little joystick and uh, you know, centipede stuff. Um, That's why our our uh, generations, yours and mine, are more addicted to the iPhone, I think, than the kids. Yeah. I yeah. really do. You know, so we so we get our computing uh, you know, roughly, you could say like the 1950s, we get the baseline uh, pieces that we need for computing to come into existence. And then uh, computing's actual impact is ubiquitous computing, we like to call it, you know, it's all, it's, it's everywhere, right? Um, again, if we go back to the football field, computing and information uh, technologies as a part of, you know, everyday human existence, right? Um, you're looking at a quarter of an inch on yeah. a football field. Nothing. Okay. So your human body has been imprinting and impressing and becoming and knowing for all of these hundreds of thousands of years in a way of trusting itself and having processes, physical processes, right? Um, all of this time, and we're adaptive creatures. We're adaptive to environment, yes? And so... Essentially, overnight, overnight, we as a species have woken up. You know, when you think about the... the um, are, are you going to bring up Terrence McKenna's stoned ape theory? Because that's where I have to go. I'm not. I wasn't going to um, okay. bring that up. But, All right. Um, so we as a species have sort of woken up. Do you have a theory on why that happened? On on the why Like, Because you're right. We go t- almost 200,000 years going... Ugh. With a hammer. I mean, that's what we do. And then out of nowhere, in this small little 50,000 spark, we have consciousness. We begin to develop more tools. We explode, like you just said, right? We spent this long time with our body development. And then out of nowhere, some reason, we all of a sudden have consciousness, if you will, and move to this questioning of our being or existence. Why? You know, I I have to say that I'm... um for the work that I do, um, which is, you know, enabling people to seize hold of what is extraordinary about being alive and uh, enabling people to understand that within themselves at every moment, at any given time, they are the solution and they have the capacity uh, to transform the moment into the dream, right? Yeah. Um, I would agree. So, I, I argue that fact in my book that to start change in your life, the first thing you have to accept is there is no reality. And when you can grasp onto the idea that there is no reality, that the truth is what you perceive it to be based on the thoughts that you create, then we control everything and you are the superhero yourself. You know, and I, I hate to jump in there. I agree with you. No, no, but I got to ask that. With that consciousness explosion, right, when we stopped using our body so much, right, I'm theory, theoretically speaking, when we stopped using our body so much and this brain use explosion happens, right, the thought, the reflectiveness, the self-awareness, however that happened and came to be, it's almost like we started using the thinking more, the cognition more than allowing the environment to change us so much. And that argument exists in epigenetics, right? Is it the exterior, the nature, nurture? We're not going to solve that today. You know, but 
So it seems as if we're like, we used our body so long, some explosion of consciousness and reflection happens. And then from there, we decided to go on our thoughts. And now in this generation, I argue the fact that we've been taught to feel rather than think. And so many people go around reacting to feelings that are irrational, that are not real, that are based in social constructs of some letdown in the past or expectation or assumption of others or the world or themselves. And so it's like, it's almost like we've evolved from using the body less. But what I hear you saying is we need to use the body more, which is what I say in the book too. I say, listen to your body. I say that anxiety and depression are just symptoms of your body going, get the fuck out of here. You know what I mean? Change something. But we spend so much time trying to suppress the body's symptomatic reactions and use just this or pills or whatnot to numb that out. So is that kind of what I'm understanding you're saying is that we should trust the body more? And learn to use the body to push the thought and belief or use the cognition to construct the belief to move the body? You know, I think that everyone is on really safe footing if you put the universe inside of yourself. Okay. And so uh, when you look out into the world, what do you see? You see all kinds of different valuations. So you see a group here that you value in this way and a group there that you value in that way. If you take the universe inside yourself, you will have these different groups. So you have your digestive system, you have your brain, you have your muscles, you know, doing their thing. So you have all these different groups. And when we get to the point where we equally value every group in our body, then we can truly become ourselves. Okay. And when we're in disequilibrium, this is when we're stopped, okay? And so part of the, the really important part of recognizing we cannot court and cultivate disequilibrium in the universe that is our body, self, existence. When we're courting disequilibrium, this is where we start really valuing thoughts or really valuing feelings or really valuing the physicality, you know, we can look at appearance, you know, this is really, really important. Um, when any one of these pieces is more significant to us as an individual than another piece, we're in a state of disequilibrium. Uh, so you'll, you will see that like you can have a thought process, for example, and the thought process is telling you something different than your physical feelings are telling you. And you're out of equilibrium when you're giving more weight. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, you know, positive psychology is a great example of um, needing to be very cautious about being out of equilibrium. Because uh, this notion that I can think myself into wellness is not correct. You know I'm going to take issue there. Oh, I'm going to take issue there. I would totally disagree with you by itself. Exactly. Maybe, Yeah, add by itself on that. Exactly. Because yeah, that is definitely a tool that has to be expressed. It's, an, it's a really essential tool. But, but can't it's we, though? It's an essential tool. Okay. You cannot solely think yourself into a state of wellness 
Just like you cannot solely think yourself into a state of unwellness. You are a human being. You have a doing to your existence. You have a functioning to your existence. So do you need to discipline your thoughts? Yes, you do. Is the, the thought mechanism of your existence the start point of your capacity to experience freedom as a human being? Yes, it is. You know, your thought process is where you have control. You can start deciding what are my values? What are my beliefs? You can start deciding what am I courting in the imaginary landscape that is in my head? And why am I doing this to myself? And I'll give you a great, you know, hands-on example. I had a a very tense and difficult uh, interchange with someone that I care about very, very deeply in my family. And, uh, you know, really like had the, you know, it wasn't um, a conflict that was much articulated, but it caused a good deal of thinking, you know. So I said to myself, well, I need to just kind of cool off from escalating this. I'm going to take a step back. uh, So I'm going to go do my miles. So uh, I try to get in at least like two miles a day. So I go and I'm on my, you know, my first mile. And, uh, like the first quarter of a mile, you know, I'm just, I'm in the mix of the whole thing and going over like the script, I like to call it of each thing, you know, that the other person did and why they don't see and how come it's not clear to them, you know, this is the way it should be and I'm correct and you know, the whole thing. And, uh, so I get to like the half mile mark. Now I'm starting to just, uh, be like sort of a more generalized upset. So we can't get this thing together. Nobody's making any sense, you know, so, so, and I'm approaching, you know, the mile and I remind myself everything that is upsetting me in this moment is in my head. Mm -hmm. Everything that is causing me distress in this moment is it's related to a thought that I'm having about a thing that has happened that is not occurring at this exact minute. Uh, it's occurring, you know, in a space back there. Uh, and also I have no control over it. You know, I'm in a totally different space now. And when you can start to just grab hold of the truth, when the truth hits you and then discipline yourself into literally the next steps. So you take another step on your walk or another step on your run and you say, you know, I see, what do you see? What do you actually see in front of you? What is actually around you? You know, I see the sky is still in the sky. I see that the grass is there. I see that the, and you start bringing yourself into the presence. And so the two things that are happening here is on the one hand, you know, you're calming your system down, you're getting grounded again. And on the other hand, you're starting the training process. I do have control over my thoughts. I am generating my upset. I am generating my distress because I am invested in writing this script. I'm invested in all the novels. I had like 19 novels, you know, called my home life and my work life and my this life, you know, all running in my head. You write those novels. You choose what you focus on. That is all absolutely true. And you have space to discipline yourself where you get to the point that you can be wholly present in a given moment. Whatever stories or scripts or happenings are there are over there over they don't have to be in the present moment number one always be present two you own your thought reaction 
You own your thought response. And, you know, what I like to train people to do is to sit on both sides of the story, right? So you've done this to me. Or someone comes to me and they say, so-and-so and I'm having problems. And I say, if you were so-and-so, what would this story look like? Take your greatest upset, the worst thing that's ever happened to you, and somebody did it to you. Tell the story from their point of view. What did you do to them, right? So, yes, we do need to recognize the power of thinking, the power of thoughts, the power of disciplining our thoughts. I was going to say, because you just pretty much said that you could think yourself to wellness right there. You when you can, went for the run, you thought you yourself. You can help because I was moving my body. Sure, that helped. Yes, definitely, and definitely. so this is what I mean about the equilibrium of all the parts. Oh, gotta, yeah. You've got to give yourself like a fighting chance. You know, your your little brain is a beautiful part of your body. It is an extraordinary part of your body. But your little brain is just one piece of Agreed. your body. And but that's so where it can start. Sorry, It can start. But you've got to help yourself. You know, the nutrients, right? Most people are starving. Most people are malnourished, right? People who um, suffer from depression, from anxiety, from these kinds of things. You know, the very first thing you can do is just figure out, are you nourished? Mm -hmm. Literally nourished. And it doesn't matter whether you're really, really obese or you're really, really thin or you look like you're healthy. Are you getting the correct nutrients, yeah. right? So it's what you're putting into your body. Yeah, your brain can't function like what it needs you? to. Yes. And the, we've now linked gut and gut bacteria as the second brain itself. The second brain. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, and so, yes, you want to have those positive thoughts, the disciplining process, the thinking process, right? But you also have to give yourself a fighting chance by valuing all of the other tools that you have at your disposal. Nutrition is tool number one, right? And then you go into what are you doing with your Movement. body? Movement. Yeah. Do you, you move? Gotta, you got to move your body. That's right. Your body was made to move. You have to move your body and find the movement that is right for you, right? It's giving you having people tell you what kind of, you know, if you don't want to get up out of a chair, you know what? Don't get up out of a chair. Sit in the chair and move your arms around, you know. Whatever you can grab hold of in order to get yourself going is what you grab hold of. You know, I tell folks, you want to do yoga and uh, you can't stretch, you, you know, you might have weight difficulties, you might have flexibility. Sit in a chair, put the yoga on, you know, you get yoga on YouTube, anywhere. Sit in the chair. And allow yourself to follow the breath. Your breath is a form of movement. Your breath is movement. You're moving well when you're just letting yourself breathe properly, right? So it's like learning how to appreciate all of these ways of being that your body has access to and not valuing one way over the other. And when I say that it's a danger and a disservice, I believe, you know, to tell people that we can only rely on thoughts. It's because we have so little information as individuals. Most individuals have so little information about how their body functions, you know, um, that you'll have people who are suffering from depression, who are suffering from anxiety, who are suffering from uh, uh, borderline personality disorder, bipolar disorder. These experiences are somatic 
These experiences live in the body. These are not just mental models. These are not just thought processes. These are physical experiences. So somebody who's depressed is like, I cannot get myself out of bed. Right. You tell me to think myself. Now for that person, thinking is going to be core to their healing and their recovery. But forgiving the body to the degree that you're willing to say, I'm going to move around for five minutes today. Yeah. Loving the body to the degree that you are willing to say, I'm not going to go on another diet. I'm just going to learn how to make sure that I have an adequate amount of nutrition. Right? So yeah. it's the equilibrium of all the parts. Yeah, and I would agree. Um, part of what I cover in my book, you almost did it in order. I swear to God, it's like you read my book. It's it's a, it's coming out on the 25th. Yeah, it's a culmination of change. It's the idea that I think it starts with nutrition, like I said, because your brain's not operating like it could, your, like it should. Your, body's, your body is not functioning properly. So you can't expect your thoughts to be trustworthy, if you will. Um, but when you begin to question and dive down into what you actually believe about, say, food, Right. You could look at somebody and say, all right, you're having trouble eating. You've done all the behavior changes, right? You, you went to the gym, you, you found the South Beach diet, you found uh, whatever diet you liked or eating, whatever, you know, but none of that, it works for a little while, but you just can't hang on to it. It's not persistent with it. What I talk to about clients is, well, what do you believe about food? What's the belief? And the reason you may know what eating, it's why people that have knowledge of eating healthy can't sustain it many times or they hold it for a little while. And I think they fall because they do make behavioral changes. They do make environmental changes and they do those things. But what they never really dive down into is they go, well, I know I should eat healthy. I know is what they believe about food. And it seems very simple. But when you can dive down through all the thoughts that kind of clog up or the thoughts that are cultivated from what you truly believe at your core. What a lot of people have found and clients I've worked with that have trouble with eating or they can diet for a little while or they eat healthy for a little while, but then they curb off of it. Even after the biological changes of addictions of carbs and sugar changes is down, bene down beneath it. They have certain beliefs. They go, well, food should taste good and I should have all the options I want. And so then you go, but I know I can't. So I don't. Well, yeah, for a little while. Because your thoughts and your behaviors can change for a little bit. But until you're willing to question what you really believe and get really, really deep into your psyche about what do I really believe? Some people know they have to exercise, but some people don't. They believe it's a waste of time. So they try it. Then they fall off. They try it. They fall off. They do the behavior. They change the, all those. But they don't change what they really believe. And they're not willing to question it. because They know what they know. And they know what they think. But what they think is coming from what they believe generally at a core, in my opinion, what you believe about yourself, others in the world, those core beliefs, right, that you've developed through your behavioral experiences to concrete those. And then so, you know, we can visit, I believe, in the now, the present dialogue without any behavioral change in the moment and make an immediate change of feeling and body change. Because... For instance, if I'm standing here and I create my reality and I construct my what's going on with my words, right? I, I create the reality by what I think. Mm -hmm. I use those words specifically. And so if I'm willing to take those words, but what do we say about being positive or silver lining? We can be in the moment and something happened based on my perception. I call it what it is. Well, this fucker cut me off. He, he risked my daughter's life in the back seat by cutting me off in that car. How dare he let me pull up on him, flick him off, and throw some stuff at him. Right. 
Or is it the perception of the idea of my thoughts where he cuts me off and I can go, how here, wait, thank God I missed him. Everyone's safe in the car. The feeling comes down. For me, the thoughts can control redlining. Not say the problems go away. Because look, we're never going to get rid of all of our problems, to be honest. We don't live in a utopia just yet. So that notion that we can eliminate all those things by simply being Buddha, well, they've been trying for a long time up in the mountains, right? So that notion of that in the immediate moment, we can construct dialogue that changes an immediate feeling and changes the body immediately. If I'm standing here and I convince myself that this person said something disrespectful and has threatened my life and I continue that dialogue in my head, all I'm trying to do is convince myself my initial reaction was, was right. So I'll construct my own dialogue to perpetuate a feeling I think I should have based on that person's reaction or action, but really my belief. And so I can change that perception in a moment. We can, we control that perception because there are no realities, right? Just what we paint with our thoughts. So in that moment, I may be paralyzed and I can't do anything, but I can take my thoughts and create a feeling in that moment. It's why people, I think, create falling in love so fast. Oh, we just met. We ordered the same thing. Oh, my God. We're, you know, it's meant to be, right? We start creating these thoughts of what isn't real because we perceive it to be. And the truth is there is no reality. We can back up reality by saying science proves that the sky is blue and the grass is green and that's a steak or that's a mouse and I see it there. But we can still create a perception of something else. You know, the challenge is... Uh... Not sustainable, that, though. That that can be true. You know, what you're saying can be true, uh, that there is no reality, and uh, we create reality. The challenge is that the good majority of people do not live in that belief. You know, the good majority of people live um, really deeply um, ensconced inside of structuring structures. They live very deeply embedded in... Uh, this is my community. Um, this is where I usually go grocery shopping. This is, you know, and just to give you a sense of how sort of deeply entrenched and invested people are in, there is a reality. Um, and I want that reality to be familiar. Uh, if you, you know, get together a group of uh, 20 people and you um, know what kinds of stores they have access to, you know, in proximity to their home, you'll see that they have tremendous choice. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, what they can leave the store with, you know, they go grocery shopping. Again, tremendous a choice, right? There's like 800 uh, different kinds of spaghetti sauces. Too much choice. Lots of choice. What you'll see, if you could track those people over a six-month period of time, you will see that they make the same choice over and over again. Behavior. They go to the same store over and over again. Uh, they buy the same foods over and over again. Uh, the Internet, you know, that we love to talk about is hundreds of billions of websites. And so um, most people go to fewer than 20 mm -hmm. uh, sites. Most people on a given day have like four to five sites. And that's uh, my original research background is like actually interactive uh, technologies and its uh, impact cool. on, on society. Um, and so what comes out is uh, this deep-seated hunger for the familiar. 
um, one of the most fascinating, we used to have a, an information a technology czar whose name escapes me at this moment, but uh, he did this really fascinating research, unfortunately showing that rather than giving people access to greater um, differing opinion, people utilize the internet to affirm what they uh, already believe. You know? Yeah, and using a... Love, oh, sorry. sorry. No, you had something. Uh, we love you know familiarity, and we love our reality. Um, and I, I, I call them uh, sanity-keeping uh, illusions. You know, we can't walk around. Most people cannot walk around entirely and completely aware of just how uh, extraordinarily much power they have to transform themselves in their moment and their society. And it's, it's a tremendous weight for a lot of folks. And so then it becomes a matter of where are people in their heads now? What kind of conversation can I have with people who may not even be looking for happiness, who may not even be looking for optimal in order to start showing them how to get to optimal, how to get to happiness, you know? And so for me, that's a big part of the work. I have a new project right now called All In um, Optimal where I'm really focusing on bringing the language of life optimization into a realm that is accessible uh, for people from all different kinds of backgrounds and people who learn in all uh, different kinds of styles, Uh, not just folks who like to read and not just folks who like to write or research. Um, You know, some people need to just get their information via video and some people need to just listen to their information and uh, some people need to just uh, actually have these very, very embodied, you know, doing experiences of actually practicing. I don't want you to tell me what is the theory about why this works. You just tell me a practice that I can grab hold of, um, these kinds of approaches. And uh, just going back, you know, for sort of a last time to the thoughts is that If we would allow the limit of thinking uh, to exist and just come, you know, back to the very simple truth of oneness that we find in every single, every single spiritual tradition, and we find in science as well, oneness. If we come back to uh, this incredible framing that we get out of A Course in Miracles where they say, you know, there are billions of problems you will never solve them all if you're going to look at each problem as it is but you can come to the solution when you recognize the solution to all of these different problems is always the same thing it's love yeah we we circle back there a lot to that yeah and so you know when you love your body when you learn how to love your body you don't need to analyze and rationalize and consider and be measuring out your portions and uh, you know all of these different things. When you respect your body because you are in a state of love, you are as in love with your body as you could be with a child or a spouse and so forth. When you're in love with your body, you can't contaminate what you truly, deeply Believe. love. Yeah. You know, and so you like how I connected that to yeah, so what we you can believe. have all of these different understandings and approaches and frameworks and so on. But love is always a viable solution. I can argue that. 
one, the word always is quite irrational because one day we all might be gone from this earth and we can't love anymore. Um, I talk about that in my book, just determinate words that we select certain dialogues that actually speak of irrationalities that perpetuate emotions we believe we should feel. And we tend to say words like, well, you always do this to me. Everybody knows it's never going to change with you. Right. So we use these words and yeah, it will never I always absolutely be. absolutely agree with you, yeah. except in relationship to the word love. And I will say well, I was that it's connect. extremely important uh, that we are able to recognize uh, the boundlessness of love. So you're be assigning love to a really specific cultural definition, sure. how we express it and understand it and so forth. It's a, it's a boundless omnipresence, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I absolutely agree with you about determinate words. Yeah. With the exception of love. Well, um, couldn't we argue that love is merely a social construct constrived of certain things that one is supposed to do or should do, say they use to bestow that word on someone? I mean, couldn't I argue the fact that love is fear? If I put you and me in a foxhole and we take machine gun fire and we survive and we come out, well, we're going to be connected. And that's a fear there. And couldn't we say that people connect in a... Fear too, as well as possibly an admiration, a respect, a um, selfish need. And we find ways to give and take with that person that we call love, but really it's a give and take exchange, like back to our homo sapien early days to where we call it love and acceptance of the other, but truly we could be extrinsically motivated for a selfish need and we paint the social construct of love if you will which like you said is defined differently in multiple generations and what's accepted or what's supposed to you know if you say i love you in this world and then we say well that comes with things that you can't say i love you and then talk to me that way right we we have these social constructs built around it and couldn't we argue that if we hinge everything on love we're then again just attaching the development or evolution of our species to a social construct. Wow. No, not That to was th- disheartening. That was hard to even talk about, right? I'm, t- I'm just playing devil's advocate over here. You know what I mean? Um, the answer is only yes when we don't understand what love is. And uh, when we understand that love is energy, it cannot be created or destroyed. It is energy everything and it's beyond any one of us as a you know cognizant individual uh, to define you know as soon as someone can explain exactly why it is that your firing neurons look identical uh, to the galaxy <laughs> wow um, right. You know, then they can go ahead and say, uh, this is a limited definition of love that I'd like you to buy into. And I might, you know, I might uh, consider listening to their applesauce recipe. But before that, when we step back and look at energy in and of itself, you know, the energy that is in your cells, the energy that makes it possible the vibrations. for us, yes, to be the species that we are. When you just step back and look at human existence as it is for what it is in the context of a greater picture of the universe that we inhabit or the multiverse, depending on who you talk to, 
then you understand that you know it's not for us to be trying to apply um, definitions. We do, right? We have to, to title everything, don't we? To the boundless word, you know, if the closest definition that we could possibly give love and be on accurate course is energy. Yeah, I like that. It's energy, you know, and we need to be very cautious about ways of framing that start assigning good and bad. You mean the ways we think about it? Exactly. You know, so love is good or, you know, it feels bad. Unless you've been cheated on 18 times and left by everybody that told you they loved you, they may be looking at love as a bunch of bullshit. You know what I mean? It, people get construct based on their perception of it, right? And I would urge them to keep looking because you love will find you. You know, you have to be positive in it. And I'm a, I'm a lovey guy. That's what I do. I tell everybody I love you. I'm a fan of love. Don't get me wrong. Um, but for some reason, I'm needing to play this constructive devil's advocate over here. Um, you know, maybe that energy does exist to want to share, right? I could go back that people refer, we were referencing primal instinct to share or, or selfishly survive. We don't know. Like you said, maybe back then we didn't think so much that we did just react to those feelings of the love or the share here, give you this, I give you that, right? I'll, maybe it was, you know, who knows? And I, I'm going to circle back. I wrote something down that I want to get into with you. Um, it was really cool. You kind of blew my mind for a second. What are the thought? And I was like, whoa. <laughs> um, you know, when we were thinking about those 200,000 years of the development of the body, right, that we used our body the most, right? And you were talking about a synergy of discovering all of them, right? And it seems like we've moved into the era of the brain, right? Like we've, oh, look, we can think, right, this consciousness. And have you heard of Terrence McKenna's stoned ape theory? I've heard of the theory. I'm not uh, super invested. Uh, yeah, I think it's really cool. And hey, there's no other explanation. Cooking some meat, eating some agriculture, right? These are all definitions that have somewhat been proven, then not, then disproven, right? So I thought the theory was a hell of an, uh, an assumption to look at and go, hey, 200,000 years were just nothing. And then all of a sudden this explosion of, you know, love, right? Where did that come from? And his notion basically in the sense is that at each continent, has its own psychedelic, if you will. And we've been foraging animals since the beginning. We do it now when we love to travel and try food from other countries, right? We like to investigate, explore, right? I would like to think, I'd like to think so. And in our exploring, our eating of trying different things of, you know, well, can we eat that? Can we eat that? Mm -hmm. Some die of allergies, some die, right? Don't eat shellfish, right? We have all our freakouts along the way. But what he argues is that, in that 200,000 years, that explosion that happened is in our uh, exploring for food and our gathering that we found the psychedelic mushroom and ingested this psychedelic. And this exploded the idea of a God, a higher power, a consciousness, an existence of love. And we took that notion and that began the explosion of consciousness, that idea of working together, of groups, of uh, something greater than ourselves. And I do find it strange that on each continent, it has its own psychedelic to its own area, which we could argue had its own clan or tribe in its own areas at the time. And I'm a fan of psychedelics. I'm a massive fan of organic psychedelics, not synthetic LSD type psychedelics, but uh, from, you know, 164 different strains of psilocybin, et cetera, you know, down to dimethyltryptamine, the main active ingredient in every psychedelic. I mean, we know DMT is in every living thing. We know when you die, all of the DMT in your body rushes to your brain. Well, if you've ever smoked DMT for 15 minutes, you literally leave your body. 
Okay. You, and I've seen so many people come out and go, religion's bullshit and God's real. You know what I mean? I mean, that's like almost number one quote I hear a lot, right? And people come out talking about love and greatness and together. And you see this. I mean, if you've ever experienced or been around people and done that, um, I'm a fan of treating people with them. I've seen it do amazing things. Long-term PTSD cured. 40-year alcoholic cured. I say cured, not he was cool for six months and a year and relapsed. It's just done. I mean, I've seen, you know, I've known military snipers that have struggled with nightmares for years. One treatment, done. I mean, cure. When you witness that, I can't ignore that. I can't go, yeah, I didn't see that happen, right? I mean, I can't turn off my experience, which creates my concrete beliefs you were speaking about earlier. You know, is I think we have three core concrete beliefs, what we believe about self, others, in the world. Once we define those through our experience of self, others in the world, we quickly just say, yep, that's what we believe. Then we build our other beliefs on top of that so we can quickly make decisions and move through life. And until we get to know those core concrete beliefs, what do we really believe about self, others in the world, right? Is it fair? Is it love? Is it right? That truly any decisions or thoughts we're creating, we could change them change our feeling. It won't last. That's why at the end of my rant about thinking changes the feeling is it's not long-term. You can change it in the now and over time change your thoughts and it can happen. Uh, but that belief is what has to be investigated and cultivated. And I think before people can discover love, they got to really ask themselves, what do they believe about love? What's real about love? So then you can construct rational just, thoughts. Um, I'm going to connect you. I'm going to connect okay. you. And then I'll swear to God, I'll shut up. Um, but we talked about the body development. Terrence McKenna's explosion, possibly, of consciousness, or however our brain turned on, right? And we threw a rock, maybe, and went, holy shit, right? However that happened, our brain turned on, and we're evolving still. What the fuck is next? If you said we're learning, right? Like, it took us 200,000 years just to learn our body, right? And now it's taken us God knows how long to actually learn this thing. We know almost nothing. And when you look at, right, half a millimeter to... 10,000 miles to go. We don't know much here. Maybe it's just to receive her. Maybe it's just picking up vibrations and signals that we process. Who knows? But if we're just now so young, you made me think about that synergy of until you can do your nutrition, your exercise, your body on a macro level, until we understand our body, fully understand our brain and the power of our thoughts or what's, what it's really doing. What's the next thing of the evolution that brings this synergy of the human being? into the now it is enticing and um, inviting and inspiring the macro the great majority you know to come and participate uh, in their own evolution that's really what it comes down to uh, a movement away from self is that what you're saying yes oh man I hope that would be so beautiful, wouldn't it? If we could really move. I hope I see that generation. I probably won't. It's so far from now. I mean, we, there's too much killing going on still. Too much racial, social constructs running our rooted concrete beliefs of yeah. experience. So, yeah. It's making uh, that next movement into making it possible for everyone to recognize what's already there. And we took a quick break for nature. But um, I stayed on the podcast and she quickly returns.
back to the show. I'm going to try to shut up a little more. <laughs> she just excites me so much when I'm talking. She'll say something and I'm like, oh, oh, I got an idea. And I haven't even had that much coffee. Literally, I still almost have a full cup. But I mean, that's that natural energy, right? That natural high of the connecting of individuals on a mental level, um, on a deeper level of, of conversation, of talking. And, you know, that's really what we're doing is exchanging those ideas and I think about that, you know, I love how she says that next level, you know, possibly is that connecting of all of us, this synergy, this oneness that we all can, you know, find together and, you know, breaking away from that. I just, this is fascinating to me. I, I, I love that talk. Um, yeah. Did you want to expand on, on that coming together, that third? In order to, you know, I'm trying to really kind of look at, you know, exactly the, the way that I want to uh, explain this, but it's really uh, this almost contradictory process where, you know, in order to become entirely selfless, you need to become entirely selfish um, in a very strange sense of the word almost. Um, it's being willing to become completely invested in yourself. And, you know, I, I see this as someone who has lost um, so many people that I love uh, to their inability uh, to heal. And in so many ways. Uh, because we live in a society of a radical addiction. And most post-industrial societies are societies of radical addiction. And the number one addiction is, is work addiction, right? Because you can feed your ego, you validate yourself, you get the awards, the achievements, the accomplishments, and it all looks really beautiful. And then you have a heart attack. Uh, far earlier than you ought to have had. You have a stroke far earlier than you ought to have had. You have all of this tremendous success. The people who work for you are devastated and miserable and they take that misery home to the people that they love. You know, And so it spreads out when you're not invested in loving on yourself. You know, I like to, uh, I like to tell people a story about uh, the Titanic and why the Titanic went down. You know, it's this incredible ship, the state-of-the-art engineering, uh, the, the best of the best of the best of everything. To think about how many folks you know who are extraordinary. They are gifted. They are amazing people, and they can't see it. What do they do? They go full speed ahead, and no matter what they accomplish, it's not enough. It's not good enough. It's never enough, right? I just had three people on the show do that that have gone a long ways that say, oh, it's never enough. You got to keep making the next one. You got to make the next one, you know. So why did the Titanic go down? Was it was it not properly engineered? It was a wonder of engineering. The Titanic went down because someone didn't believe that what was already shown to be extraordinary about it was enough. So they wanted to go faster than they needed to be going. If that ship had been going slower, it would have been able to avoid the iceberg and all those people would not have lost their lives. If people would simply believe the truth, 
which is that you are always already enough to use a determinant. Uh, you're already there. And then everything else is really just a gravy situation. Everything else is just an add-on. But we don't believe that. We believe if then. If I get a promotion, then I will. If I get a raise, then I will be enough. If I get the award, the acting part, uh, if my company gets listed on the NASDAQ, if I, if I, if I. If I get then, married, if I have the baby. If, you know, I mean, you got to go on that side, right? You Sorry. know, so that's, that's. A, the most obvious and overlooked a form of separating right from the truth which is that you are a creature in the image of the multiverse and you already have all that you need within you in your existence you don't need to prove it you don't need to do anything to signify it you are already valid and validated right but when we're not able to recognize that, we're separated from the truth of ourselves, which most people are separated from the truth of themselves. And then you fall into these extreme forms of addiction in order to try to cope with the tremendous pain and suffering that being separated from your truth creates. So now we are using pills, right in order to bring us way up or to bring us even out or bring us a little bit down because we're too keyed uh we're using all different kinds of drugs to our detriment you know we're using the alcohol but the even more dangerous or equally dangerous addictions are behaviors addictions to certain types of emotions addictions to certain types of responses you know what is an addiction at its core it's doing something that no longer serves you out of a need to handle your pain why are you screaming at that woman who loves you why are you hitting that woman who loves you why are you hitting that child who loves you? Why are you screaming at the uh, person who works for you? You know, why are you grabbing hold of this violent outburst of anger? That's an addiction, right? And instead of treating people who are grabbing hold of these like vile, negative, violent behaviors and being equally vile and negative and violent toward them, and punitive we start grabbing hold of people and recognizing they're suffering from addictions they're suffering from a need to keep grabbing hold of behaviors that harm them because they're just trying to soothe their own pain and this is the only way that they know how it's to have an outburst of anger or it's to grab a shot of whiskey or you know it's to uh, work 80 hours a week to show that they're a super person it's to starve their body to show that they're above being human it is to stuff their body in order to escape and run away right so we're all these different forms and again you know going back to what i said earlier if we're going to start talking about all these different problems into all these areas of specialization again we start to lose sight of the simple solution when you recognize yourself, you don't have to suffer as much anymore. When you recognize that you are worthy of love, you don't have to do anything to be loved. 
then you can actually experience love in yourself. You know, now the challenge as someone who's taken this journey, right? The challenge is it's really uncomfortable and it's actually exceptionally unpleasant. And you wonder why people don't stay in their recovery programs and they don't stay on a path of exercising or eating healthy or being motivated. It's because you're going to have to enter this terrifying, uncomfortable zone called, I don't know who I am, what I am, or where I am going. Right now for myself, you know, I'm just like as about alpha as alpha comes. Um, I went uh, through college as a single mom. I worked full time. I went to school for 10 years while raising my son. Uh, So, you know, four years of undergraduate school and then the master's degree uh, and then the PhD back to back to back to back. So you couldn't tell me that there was anything I couldn't do. I always had a plan. I always knew what was coming next. I always knew uh, how to do the next right thing until I didn't anymore. And my aha moment came when I was listening to a woman who's a biologist uh, who actually discovered an entire discipline. She discovered, she invented a discipline, okay? So it's, you really kind of don't get more uh, amazing than discovering a discipline. And uh, it was Ira Flato on, uh, you know, Science Friday. And he's interviewing her and he's talking about all of her awards. And he says to her, you know, um, you sound like it's not enough. He said, you sound like, at this point, you know, she's running a research lab. She's got a lot of people working under her. Again, has invented a discipline. And he says to her, you know, you sound like you don't really recognize how much you've accomplished. And she said, she took a really long pause and, you know, grace to her. She said, that's actually true. I don't feel like I've accomplished that much. And I heard that and I said, you know, shit. What's going to happen to me? (laughs) You know, Um, if it's not enough for her, all this credentialing, and she still doesn't feel like she's enough. I'm not going to discover a discipline, so I may need to take a step back here and figure out how I'm going to get my affirmations and my validations. You don't know that. You may invent it. You may. This is true. Right? See, one would, it would be irrational to say you're never going to do that. Hell, in 10 years, you may invent something totally new. This is true. See, doesn't that feel better to think? Well, you know, it's really about being able to take the validation from yourself as yourself. Mm. Where, the self-acceptance where you where you are exactly where you are the self-love this, maybe this is the work you know that i do with uh organizations and with individuals is to allow people to recognize uh it's actually already all right it really is it's a breathe into the moment of right now as soon as you have said we like to call it step zero Uh, I'm willing to make change. You're already all right. The next piece, you know, we have to ask ourselves, why do so many people fail on the journey? Why do so many people stop with their programs? You know, this is businesses that put together these amazing plans for the future and then they don't happen. This is individuals who buy the, uh, you know, home exercise equipment that doesn't get used. Um, what happens that's the space that i'm invested in 
you know we've got billion dollar industries for uh, dieting we've got billion dollar industries for organizational development and how to make a better business we've got billion dollar industries for how to grow a better leader we've got billion dollar industries for how to get the greatest body you know ever and so forth and everyone is spending lots and lots of money on all these things for me I always say if what you're doing is working we should be seeing radical scale we should be seeing change at a radical scale if you look at the investment that organizations and individuals are making the financial investment that is being made to court positive change okay mm -hmm. and then you look at the actual outcomes we can look at it as just a straight fiscal return on investment we can look at it as a social return on investment we look at the outcomes there's not a balance the amount that is being invested versus the actual return on investment doesn't equal out why because people are not following through at the individual level which will always translate into scale people are not following through with change the space that I'm interested in, you know, we can talk about all kinds of research studies that show what is good for you and so on. I'm interested in this space. We, we have a study that shows uh, folks go through this three-day meditation and mindfulness program. It creates radical transformations uh, in the activity in their amygdala. It's extremely positive and it makes their lives better and it makes their lives easier. Okay. They take all of this information from the three-day invested time span. They've learned the practices. They go home. We do a follow-up, and the study shows that they're doing the practice less than 40 minutes a week on average, which means there are some people who are doing nothing. And then we have to say to ourselves, what is causing us to know what the answers are? As individuals, we know what the answers are. Yes. I would argue the belief. What is causing us to know what the answers are and we're not what they really believe following through. You would argue a belief. And again, I come back to a space without language. Okay. Which is a willingness to learn to feel. Hmm. That I would argue you can't feel unless what you feel comes from what you think. Well, you know, to the degree that I greatly value um, the feelings of very small children who have relatively limited cognitive processes, um, I would say that it's, you know, it's a balance. Um, but again, uh, when we start investing in a conversation about empowering and enabling people to optimize without getting lost in all of the volumes of research on, you know, motivation and uh, whose theories are right and whose theories are wrong. And we really start to look at what two people need. What you find is they need tools and choice. And I know that you see this with your own clients, which is some clients may do very well with meditative practice and yoga. Mm -hmm. And other clients may do very well when you train them to identify what is their flow state, you know, what really gets them into a space of just enthusiasm, feeling yeah. enthusiastic, right? Uh, other clients may need to go through a whole thought process, like who am I? What am I? What do I want? You know, and other clients may just need to start going jogging 
so that they can have a space where they're not thinking about anything and they're just experiencing themselves in the world. And when we as scientists are willing to step back and let our own egos go a bit and stop suggesting that there's uh, this practice and this practice and, you know, whatever our scientific discipline or our particular theoretical emphasis is, and we're willing to start meeting people where they are Mm -hmm. and give them the best possible tool for them where they are, then we can start scaling the change that needs to happen. You know, when I go and I work with uh, young folks, 16 to 24, who have gone through the justice system one time, two times, three times, you know, they need to have a certain kind of conversation. They need to receive a certain set of instructions. They need tools uh, that are applicable to where they are. When I go and I do a seminar uh, with people who have started multi-billion dollar businesses and they are trying to figure out how to value themselves as much as they value their startups, that's a specific kind of conversation. And when, again, we as scientists are willing to kind of get out of the way and start being empathetic enough to listen to what people are telling us they need. And we can mine all of the research and all the methods and all the practices and provide people with those optimization skills that are specific to what they need. You know, we've reached a point where we're willing to talk about a tailored medicine, right, Uh, based on uh, DNA testing and so forth. And so we need to take that, that same notion of the tailored solution into these well-being optimization experiences that we're offering to people. Yeah, uh, I would agree because although I may sound cognitively based, uh, as you read through the book, what I talk about, it takes to sustain change. I think it begins with where you believe, what you believe. But like I said, to be, I'm sorry, to, to ignite change, it starts with questioning what you believe, being willing to change what you believe. But that will not sustain it. That will help you maintain it. You have to take a behavioral approach. You have to take a biological approach. You have to take a cognitive approach, a fully integrative and dynamic approach to do so. But what you speak about is the individual approach. That's some of the issues that I have with government-funded rehabs is it's a typical 12-step program, one size fits all. And if you don't do it right, well, and if it doesn't work for you, you you did it wrong. And I wish I could invent something and say if it didn't cure you, it's because you took it wrong. And so a lot of um, what I cover um, is having that switch or having that dynamic approach, that integrative idea of of going at all of those things to sustain uh, a long change. And I'm lengthening my blabbering to try to remind myself where I was going. Um, (laughs) um, We were talking about, oh, yeah, the dynamic approach to uh, a change, to something change. But um, like I said, I do think it takes, you know, all of that approach, the one size fits all. I agree with you. There is no one path. I state that in my book. I believe there's no one path to one way. We have to meet the individual where they are. 
And the biggest issues in rehabs and therapy offices all across this world is they are greeted with the biasy of the practitioner, which I am a behavioralist. I am a cognitiveness or a cognitive uh, practitioner. So I focus on that biasy. And the 12 steps kind of does the same thing. It's telling you to take a self-inventory really of everything around you. But for the most part, it's telling you to behave this way and stick to this, which some people do love it. It works. No doubt it works. And some no connection. You know, but you have to find that one that fits you, that the the exercise that you like, the food that fits you, the, you have to like that rather than a one size fits all. And that's what I loved actually about my book so much is this is not my way. This isn't me going follow step one, two, and three, and you'll be rich. That's not what I do. What essentially I'm doing is you cultivate your own truths based on what you believe. And I help you shape those, your base beliefs, by telling you what you consider rational, what you consider. So you choose it. You're framing it. You're writing it. You actually will develop your own life philosophy at the end. It will culminate in front of you in almost 15 15 sentences that you will have written. But you use all those to then make your behavioral changes, to make your structure changes. Because what I say is I don't believe that we find purpose. I think purpose finds us through purposeful structure. And when you structure your life with purposeful people and purposeful activities, and I don't mean purpose in the idea of legacy. What I mean is like this person is purposefully in my life as a mentor. This place is purposefully in my life. And I structure that to a behavioral purpose. And that's why I bring in the behavioral changes. But all of this has to be met, like you said, integratively, a full change. And you got to customize your own way. And so the inventory that people do in my book, it's really fun. Like if you're like one of those that like to like see about yourself and fill some stuff out, that's what you do. And it's based on an interest to enthusiasm level. Interest to competence to confidence equals enthusiasm. And through that stretch, we can look at something and say, you know what? I'm interested in this exercise. Mm -hmm. I'm competent in this exercise, confident in this exercise. And this one makes me enthusiastic. Well, it tells you how to move it, where you need experience, where you need the research. You may go, that sucks. Right? I always wanted to try yoga, right? I never wanted to. I was like, no, it's feminine, right? That was the whole man of me, right? And then I'm like, you know what? Let me try this intensive yoga thing. Holy shit, it kicked my ass. You know what I mean? I'm like, I can lift weights. I can kettle, but you name it, I can dumb in. But man, one of those hard intensive, I'm like, man, it got me. But now I knew, right, that experience. And I think we are on the same page on the idea that Probably the most universal approach that we could probably understand, be it a social construct or not, is the idea that we can love and respect each other. But I love that you said, I don't think we can do that until we love and respect ourselves. But I don't think we can love and respect ourselves until we know ourselves and learn that. You know, And one of my phrases I hate people say, that they say a lot, that's just who I am. All I hear is I'm too naive enough to want to change or question myself. Because we never are just who we are. If you are, then you're not growing. And Lauren Hill says anything not growing is dead. So for the most part, if we're not evolving and constantly moving to that realm, and maybe love is the connection. Maybe that is what we share. I I don't know. You and I uh, have such, you know, wonderfully complimentary uh, approaches because you you have uh, this inventory that allows for um, an excavation, yes. right? It's, it's an excavation of the being. Mm-hmm. And uh, the work that I do is to take people um, through uh, seeing stars, see stars. So uh, start with compassion, uh, surrender to stillness. Be 
able to trust change, allow, right, allow truth, allow truth, be willing to hit resilient resets and always, always zero judgment, 100% accountability, right? And these practices can only be done. It's not, there's not much uh, thinking, if you will, um, in a sort of like self-analytical uh, framework. It's about guiding people uh, to the practice that makes compassion possible for them. How do you practice compassion? It's guiding people to how do you surrender to stillness, you know? So do you want to do Qigong uh, or Qigong, as some people pronounce it? Uh, do you want to do a Tonglen, a meditation of actively putting kindness into your mantra? Uh, do you want to do a mindfulness meditation? Maybe, maybe you are someone who just needs to learn how to shut down all your screens, turn everything off, set a, a timer on your stove so that it's not, you know, your phone is actually off, off, um, and just do nothing for 15 minutes. Don't worry about trying to meditate. Uh, don't worry about, you know, trying to sit in a proper position. Just actually have the experience of being still, you know, because you don't need to always be doing a specific, rigid, ritualized practice. Stillness for most people is so unfamiliar. What do you do when you sit down? You do something. You're at the computer screen, right? Uh, you're talking to someone, right? Uh, and so just learning like, oh, I can just sit down without a drink in my hand, without a drug in my system, without a screen in my hand. I can sit down and be still. And it is a form of surrender. Surrender to stillness, you know. I like that idea. Instead of forcing the stillness, the surrender to stillness, and hey, being a dialogue man, it matters, you know. Yeah. So the way you say it to yourself matters. If I'm like, all right, I have to sit still. Well, I'm going to tell you that's irrational because you don't have to do anything. Mm -hmm. But I like that if you say, I'm going to surrender to stillness. It's the same where people go through a breakup or divorce and then go, I'm so alone. You could say that or you can say you're choosing to seek solitude. Yes. What sounds better? You yes. know what I mean? And humans, we give a fuck what it sounds like. We yes. care. Perspective is everything, you know. And trusting change, you know, this comes into the identity work uh, that you're focused on. Uh, Antonio Damasio uh, is one of our um, sort of leading neurologists on understanding that this idea of identity that we're um, really invested in, that I am, you know, as you said, I am just that way. Um, you know, it's a, again, it's just a social construct. There's really no such thing. So if I said to you, you know, are you still the same as you were when you were 10? Are you still the same as you were when you uh, were 18? If I said to an 18-year-old, you know, do you really identify with your 5-year-old self? If I said to a 50-year-old, you know, do you wish you were exactly the same that you were at 30? You know, the answer to all of those questions from everyone is no. Everyone wants to uh, transform positively as they age, right? Everyone wants to mature. And yet, at the same time, and, you know, the uh, phrase for this is cognitive dissonance, but at the same time that we want to have this changing self, 
right, because we're maturing, we're evolving, we also desperately want to hold on to the notion that we are a fixed person, that we have a fixed perspective and a fixed identity and a fixed set of habits. So when we come in, you know, to healing programs, to transformation programs, change your body, change your health, change your mindset, optimization programs, recovery, whatever it is. And we say to people, change is part of this role. It's really scary and it's frightening for most folks because they're so attached to this belief. And this comes back again to meeting people where they are. So I'm not going to sit and tell someone, um, you know, why they're wrong, uh, according to all of uh, what neurology tells us uh, about the notion of a fixed identity. I want them to be able to honor that they're attached to nostalgia. They're attached to history. They're attached to memory. They're attached to certain Experience. stories. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then ask them, can you start to learn how to trust change as a way of being? So it's trusting yourself. Right. If I trust myself, if I genuinely, deeply trust myself, then I can start to encounter change as a way of being, knowing that my core is always available to me. Right. So it's trusting change. This is the essence of existence. You can't get out of change. You know, 60 seconds goes by, your body's molecular of processes have changed some things right beneath the level Definitely. Uh, a week goes by something in your life has changed and so if we can start to divest our attachment sure. to fixity while still recognizing like why are you attached well i love that story about i love that memory about i liked how i was when well, that's okay. You can hold on to all of that liking and loving and knowing about your history and yourself and your family. And, the, you know, everybody in my family yells all the time. Hold that story, but also trust that you don't have to continue yelling in order to continue being part of your family. You know, in order to be continuing, oh, I'm, a, I'm an Irish person, you know, we do the drink. I can say this because I have some Irish, you know. Uh, and so we have the drinking, you know, we like to drink. That's part of your family legacy. It doesn't mean that you right. need to continue the practice. Trust change. And when change comes that you do not like, because it's going to come for you, pain, grief, suffering, and sorrow are inescapable. We're all going to meet these in life. It's that simple. There's no way out. You know, you will meet these in life. Trust that when those changes come, it is an opportunity, not an obstacle. It's a blessing, not a mayhem, you know. And, you know, sometimes I, I tell these things that I, I get, you know, pushback from folks who say, um, you know, bad is bad is bad is bad. You know, the negative, the negative, the negative was the negative that it is. And I can say I myself have gone through every form of pain and suffering and grief and sorrow and obstacle you can imagine. And I sit here smiling. I sit here in joy. I experience joy in my everyday life because those Things that appeared to me to be obstacles were actually opportunities, and I seized them as such. It doesn't mean I didn't cry. It doesn't mean I didn't hurt. It doesn't mean I didn't break. 
it means that I was willing to be resilient. I trusted change and the possibility of what else was coming, you know. And so you don't have to have a seamless, smooth road in order to practice trusting yourself, trust your circumstances. It can become something else, you know. Yeah, I mean, you're speaking to the that perception control. You know, I talk a, a, a lot when people talk about peaks and valleys. I don't like the reference of peaks and valleys personally. Uh, one, it's a passive acceptance of a must be. And I don't like masturbating like that. So if I change my perception to say, look, for the most part, I don't learn much from silver spoon peaks. They're experiences that we love and they feel good. And our valleys, for the most part, as referred to, are those trying times, those rough roads. But I can tell you from my experience in my life, I've learned more and developed more as a person in those valleys than I ever did from any peak. And so how dare I reference the most learning time in my life as a fucking valley, as some negative pitch in my life? That's where I got the smartest. That's where I got the toughest. So for me, again, we speak to the perception creation. When you talked about um, reality or a belief that you get pushback, you know, uh, or when people get upset because life happens, you know, that happens to all of us. It's inescapable, if you will. And uh, I forgot to switch that back to you the whole time you were talking. My Steve. But um, uh, the reality of of what we create or the perception, I got to walk myself back to it. Um, Oh, those three core beliefs that people talk about, that I talk about, you know, at the core, what you believe about self, others in the world. You know, if I asked you, you know, Doc, do you believe life to be fair? Is this is not a rhetorical moment? Maybe. It started out as one and then I really wanted to know your response. And then I was like, I actually want to know that. You know, do you believe life is fair? Um, I don't believe in that concept. I, I don't believe in the notion of uh, fairness. I think it's a very um, inhibiting uh, concept because what we, what happens is, um, so we say, well, what is fair? Um, uh, you know, Rob, I'll just pull out two names. Uh, Rob and uh, Alice are in a relationship, you know, and uh, Alice does a bunch of stuff to Rob uh, that doesn't seem very fair. Uh, and then a- after Alice does like a whole bunch of seemingly unfair stuff, she goes on and has like a remarkably fabulous life, you know, including like making lots of money and a beautiful home and all these things. And uh, and so imagine if Rob is sitting, he's looking at Alice, and you go, well, that's not fair. That's really unfair. Right. Um, what happens is uh, Rob is now trapped in his um, investment in a concept called fairness. And, you know, I don't know what it was like where you grew up or where I grew up. Uh, you know, the adults would tell you all the time, life is not fair. That's right. it's, not, it's not about fair. You know, here's a really radical way of revising uh, the attachment to fairness and uh, notions of justice even. Uh, There's uh, a story in uh, contemporary Buddhist circles about um, when uh, Chairman Mao passed away. And uh, Chairman Mao, you know, is responsible for effectively genocide. Uh, Not only, um, you know, is he responsible for absolute atrocities 
amongst uh, people in Tibet. He's responsible for atrocities, uh, you know, inflicted upon people in China of all different social groups and ethnicities. And when Chairman Mao passed away, uh, he was mourned in the Buddhist communities. And the Dalai Lama, amongst many other Buddhist monks, they sat and they wept for his passing. And they wept for his passing because in Buddhism they uh, believe very deeply in the law of karma. You know, if you look at uh, Chairman Mao's life here on earth, uh, it was a, a life of opulence and luxury and he wanted for nothing. So we can say that's very unfair and we can say that's very unjust that this person who has committed awful atrocities should have such uh, extrinsic ease. Yes? This is very unfair. And I'm oh, sorry. And when he passed, he was mourned for because in the karmic understanding of the manner in which uh, the law of cause and effect works, we love to talk about the law of attraction in our society, but the law of cause and effect is a part of that package. <laughs> Jason, shout out to you, Jason Crabtree. Yeah, you got to listen to the show that we were on. He covered the cause and effect and vibration world very deeply. I will listen to it. Yeah. Uh, he calls himself an aware wolf. That's fabulous. <laughs> so the morning was the recognition that he hadn't cleansed his karma before he passed and uh, that he would come back. Yes. And be subject, be subject to the effect of the things that his uh, actions had put into motion. And isn't that justice though? In karma, in that Buddhist sense, almost a form of get what you deserve or justice. Seems like it. I mean, when I heard it, you know what I mean? It's like, you know what? We can cry for him because we know his life is fucked after this anyway. So, you know, he gets what he deserves anyway. You know, it seems kind of. But it's it's um, we are all part of the same world. And so if there's a suffering if there's an experience of pain, we're all subject to the effects of that. You know, there are very, 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 very few people who commit acts of violence and aggression without their own suffering. Ooh. Yeah, that would be the psychopath almost that you could speak to in that diagnosis. I'm, am I cutting you short? No. Okay. Because I want to get back to why I asked you that question. That answer to the question would, well, definitely back up why you're happy, rational, and enjoy life in the now. Because if I ask somebody that, sometimes you'll get, yeah, life should be fair. We should help everyone out. Da, da, da. Or most will go, no, life isn't fair. They respond the way you do. And well, not that well, <laughs> it's just very quick. It's no, it's not fair. And I go, well, you know that now, but then when life treats you unfairly, why do you get upset? Why get up? Why get upset? My second question to them usually is, should people treat you fairly? 
well, yeah, they should treat me fairly because I'd treat them fairly, right? So what I argue are that out of those three core beliefs, what you believe about the world, others, and self, if you believe somewhere that the world is fair or you just say it's not, well, if you really believe the world's not fair, nothing should upset you because the world just happened. Someone left you, stole from you, hit you. You should be Buddhist about it. You should be home and fine because you know life's not fair and you know people should not treat you fairly. If you really believe that, I would argue that you do because of the way you've carried yourself and speak about it. But for those that say, no, life's not fair, but 10 minutes ago we're screaming at me, you know, for something or someone else or we're very upset or crying even, I would kind of go, well, maybe you think that people should treat you fairly and the world's fair and you're kind of upset that it's not. You know, that's just, that's a base of those core beliefs. I forgot how we dove down this uh, competence hole. But that I, oh, that the idea of is life fair. I, I love how you speak to that notion of the, the correlation. What's the uh, Chinese uh, saying uh, where life and death are the same thread? Yes. You know, and I see that, you know, I see that wind. And if you've ever had a mushroom experience, it will show you that. Um, there's no denying those facts as you explore into some beautiful place it's amazing uh those revelations that, that can be revealed you know um you know the the psychedelics are really they're really interesting um on a lot of different uh, levels um wade davis uh is one of my um sort of social science uh, heroes i have i have yet to meet him but hopefully i will have that opportunity uh, Wade Davis, we're coming for you. <laughs> we're going to have you on the Cognitive Rampage podcast, and then we're going to reach out to Doc, and we're going to have you on the same show. So Wade Davis is one of the you know very few people in our world right now who is ringing the alarm bells um, to let everyone know that right now we live in a world uh, where every single day ethnocide is happening, where we are losing um, ethnicities. We are losing... Um, I was going to say, if you could ex expand on that idea of ethnocide. So um, what is happening as a result of um, post-industrial development, which has lots of really a fantastic positive sides to it, um, including you know radical improvements in global uh, access to health care, um, lifespans are going up. Uh, the uh, ability of women to have equal access to education is increasing. And we have a lot of work to do on these issues. Yes, we do. Um, but but there are improvements. And so I don't want to make it sound like I'm, uh, you know, anti-globalization. It's a complicated picture. Well, are you kind of speaking to the – I said race poorly in the beginning of the podcast, but are we – um, dissolving the cultures as if you like I spoke to remember as if we married within cultures would, would they it's, dilute it's the dissolution of ethnicity that is a terrific right, I, I use challenge. the poor word I said yes. raised poorly in the beginning which you very elegantly corrected me and uh, is that's is that what you're kind of speaking to too can yes. I connect those yes okay yes. Cool. it's it is the dissolution of of ethnicity which is the dissolution of um, divergent perspectives and to be able to recognize the oneness of humanity, the central oneness of our, um, not only our species, but simply our place in the universe with all other creatures, um, is absolutely essential. And at the same time, the only way that we get to the recognition of oneness, similar to the fact that the only way that we get to the recognition of love for others is 
love for ourselves. Mm-hmm. The only way to recognition of oneness is to recognition of our radical, radical diversity as a species of cultural beings, right? And so Wade Davis, and the reason that I brought him up in relationship to psychedelics is because he's um, he trained under a gentleman who, um, I hope I have this correct, uh, he trained under uh, the, the cat who we now like to call Ram Dass, uh, who you know was previously a, a scientist up at Harvard, and uh, did quite a bit of research on psychedelics. So that's the folktale that I have now. You know, if I got it wrong, I apologize uh, up front to viewers. You can Google it, find out for yourselves. But that's my understanding of the story. And uh, so with Wade Davis's sort of background in ethnobotany, where you know in ethnobotany we're looking at. What do the cultural um, practices and stories, the cosmological uh, makeup, um, what does that mean to the botanical um, uh, knowledge base, right? And so Wade Davis has this like amazing, amazing description of how the folks who discover uh, the utility of ayahuasca mm-hmm. have to hear, hear the difference between these leaves that that's the only way to recognize their distinction from one another because their um, external appearance is so similar but they have a different a hearing at a particular a time you know and it's one of these like when the moon was exactly in the sky at the you know, mm-hmm. kind of kind of stories um, and so his telling of the way in which um, certain native cultures are able to identify psychedelics out of all of the many, many options of flora and fauna, you know. And when you hear me push back against, you know, the thought, the cognitive, the thinking, that the, this is a, a rational brain that, again, it's, it's essential to value in the context of the societies that we uh, live in, in a post-industrial society, uh, the rational cognitive is really important to make sense of. Your thoughts can kill you if you let them in this kind of a society. Absolutely true. Your thoughts can help save you in this kind of a society. Absolutely true. But it's also true, it's also true for our species that you're knowing the knowing that lives in your body, the knowing that comes out of being able to hear. Close your eyes and hear you can know. Uh, don't worry about listening to words and trying to find language and trying to make sense of. Just look and allow yourself to feel, right, without language, without words. Knowledge is going to come to you. You have a somatic knowing that's why you can you can be walking down the street at a certain temperature and a certain wind and a certain season and you just feel so damn good <laughs> because your body remembers for you your body knows on your behalf it carries its own history and knowledge and understanding and we have always had We've always had cultures that knew that and knew how to practice that and knew how to advance 
our well-being as a result of that. We don't have to sit down and explain to someone like, well, why do you feel badly? You know, you don't have to sit down and explain to someone why you need to take a certain decision. You don't have to come up with this whole rational, uh, consciously, cognitively mapped out landscape. You can actually just say, I have these sensations or my body is telling me, right? If someone says to you, I'm going to do such and thus because I've thought it out and these are my five reasons, you say, oh, okay. If somebody says to you, you know, I'm going to do such and thus because I know it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Um, I call so, that pulling from your philosophies, from your truth, not your emotion. You know, so so what White, what what Wade Davis um, is really kind of helping to draw attention to, and he's working with National Geographic, um, last I heard. Uh, but what he's able to uh, help us draw our attention to is that these other cultures that appreciate and value different ways of knowing different ways of acquiring uh, intelligence and knowledge um, our, they are being disappeared they're being disappeared um, as a result of development as a result of uh, certain kinds of trade agreements and we're losing huge knowledge frameworks you know just to give you like a really super quick perspective on um you know, how cultural distinction of knowing comes into play. There's this uh, really neat anthropologist, Dorothea Lee, from the 1940s, 1950s, like one of the first ladies, you know, to be in the mix. And uh, she did research uh, on Java. So she goes to a young man and she says, she's just trying to get the whole language down and so on. And she says to him, you know, what is the word for a sister? And he says, uh, sister is uh, Ave. And she says, what is a brother? She's trying to do a male. What is brother? And he says, a brother is Kange. Okay. So then she goes to a young woman. And she says, uh, what is sister? And the young woman says, sister is Kange. She says, well, that's weird. I thought that was the word for brother. She says, what's the word for sister? And so it's reversed, right? So the researcher is very confused. You know, it's a, is it brother or sister or sister or brother? Who is what? For us, we use brother and sister to distinguish you are my sibling with a different gender. For uh, this particular uh, tribe, they use these words to distinguish responsibility, social contract. And so a sister to a sister they can spend a lot of time together. Uh, they can be in proximity to each other. There's no incest taboo that is threatened to be broken. Um, you know, they can sleep in the same bed together. Uh, and they have different social obligations toward each other. But a sister and a brother, they cannot spend, in, in this culture, they cannot spend intensive time together. They have a taboo of the amount of time that they spend, and they also have a much different obligation. The brother has different obligations towards his sister um, than he has towards his brother. So the word is used to distinguish your obligation. Their language is a language of obligation, social contract, and responsibility. They care more about that than what is your gender, mm-hmm. right? And so these are totally different perspectives. One's we, macro, one's micro. How we, how we, yeah, you can see it that way. 
Uh-huh. So That's what like, I picked up from yeah. it. I'm not saying so, that it is that. I'm just So it's these different these really different framings. Now, if that tribe, if their language no longer exists, if our knowledge of their language no longer exists, if their practice of this particular perspective no longer exists, what happens? Here's another way to think about it. Um, if we did not have access to any of the writings of Christianity, how different would Western civilization be? If we did not have access to any of the uh, writings of Buddhism, how different would uh, modern societies be, right? Mm -hmm. When we lose a culture's knowledge, right, we lose the possibility for how we understand our contemporary selves. And we lose the possibility as well for who we can become because we're shutting down our imagination of how differently we can conceptualize the world, right? Yeah. So... We lose a lot, like uh, Dr. George Brooks that was on the show, uh, the study of medievalists of the era. And uh, it's very difficult for his era, as he explained, to study because a lot of things were wiped out, were not around and gone. And so to define who someone was, what a civilization was like, what they knew becomes very difficult um, because of those, the uh, uh, ethnocide that's happening. I mean, my native people are one of the number one examples. I mean, I'm Croatan, um, described as Lumbee uh, from that tribe, but Croatan typically really, but we're not a tribe that's recognized by the United States government. And they have to recognize um, uh, the lost colony of Jamestown and some other lies. But uh, so you see our culture uh, no, that's half of me. You know what I mean? If I'm for generalist purposes, you know, I'm a Irish and native. And uh, I used to joke around, I can drink anyone under the table and kill you barefoot in your sleep. Oh, no. <laughs> it was a fun, <laughs> bad context. But, um, you know, you do see that happening. And you look back, even the Egyptian era, you know, we're left with questions. We're left with what did they know? I mean, even through World War One and Two, and all of these scrolls being burned and, and lost information, um, it would be like you and I as researchers, me losing Dr. Albert Ellis, you know, who is a REBT founder and father of cognitive, if you will, uh, only to have Beck and Maslow and these people spread out. But if Ellis went away, hell, I don't know. Does, does Beck come out with it really? You know, do, do these people expand on those ideas? And so if we lose that, I mean, and he's right. I mean, look what Wade is saying. Um, is it Dr. Davis? Wade Davis? Wade Davis. It, Just, Dr. Dr. Do, all right. So what Dr. Davis is saying is real is, I mean, we're losing that information. If you took our medical field and just removed, I don't know, a giant chunk of something, you know, we, we would be so absent. He's right. so right that if we're not, man, but how do we... God, how do we hold on to these cultures at the same time? Because a lot of times looking back at these cultures, you can find hate. I explained on my podcast, you know how hard it was for me when I dove into my native culture deep into it, how hard it was for me not to hate my other half. It was very hard not to look. I used to joke about fucking white people, you know, but I'm, I'm that too. So the, it's like the farther we study them, the more we live them and talk about them. It's, it's hard not to walk down that hole and go, you fucking, you guys killed us. You know what I mean? You wiped us out. And same for a lot of cultures, you know. And so, but we lose so much too, you know. we. So, again, you know, this is where um, being willing to bravely walk into radical compassion. Oh, fuck. I love that. Radical compassion. Yeah. Have you said that before? Um, I'm sure I have, but probably not on tape. Oh, well, I'm going to be PC. That's gangster. 
I like yeah. that. That's a little, little old me coming out. But yeah, that, I like that radical compassion. I like the opposites. Continue, please. I'm sorry. I really like that. So it's it's being willing to walk into radical compassion. And um, what are you willing to allow the truth of? Right? I, I talked before about, you know, allow truth. Truth is uncomfortable. You know, we like to talk about, like, don't you lie to me. Right. Yeah. Everybody wants, uh, you know, don't lie, but don't tell me the truth. Right. Yeah. But when we start to walk into the truth, we actually have to start to allow people to exist as human beings, even when they have done things that are absolutely horrendous. You know, like so, the, like the uh, Tibetan monks that you described with. Yes. the uh, Yeah. OK. Yes. Sure. You know, uh, so. When we start truly, genuinely following the practices of these uh, giant, brave men who we love so much, Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, uh, and beautiful women, you know, Sojourner Truth, Mother Teresa, when we start genuinely following these practices, we're going to have to set aside these very comfortable spaces of who is right and who is wrong, who is moral and who is immoral, who is worthy and who is not worthy, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, there's this really um, unfortunate dust-up that happened relatively recently with uh, Ben Affleck tried to, uh, he tried to co-opt one of our academic brothers. Oh, my God. Did, did he not <laughs> embarrass himself? He tried to co-op one of our academic brothers. Sam Harris. Uh, he, he tried to take uh, on Sam Henry, Harris. Henry Louis Gates actually was uh, in the midst of this controversy. And he, oh. he tried Didn't to, Ben go after Sam too? I believe so, but I'm... On the Bill uh, Maher show. I'm not... He, yeah, yeah, he did. He took him on, on on Sam Harris's view on Muslims and what his view was. That's where I thought you were going because Affleck got some shit. I mean, Sam Harris is a smart man. You know, but go, go ahead. I thought that's what you were referencing. So, so what uh, what uh, Ben Affleck wanted to have happened was he wanted the history of his own family's participation in slavery uh, to be withheld from public knowledge. The scholar had unearthed the knowledge, and he, you know, he wanted it not put out there because you know it's slaveholders, right? Affleck. Yeah. Now here's insurance here, ducks. Here's the thing about this. At some point in time, when we stop rewriting textbooks, when we stop erasing history, when we stop participating in historic uh, revisionism, and we start to acknowledge the atrocity of slavery for what it was, right? And this is just one example. We have to have reconciliation, and we have to sit in a seat that's really uncomfortable, which is the seat of people who participated and still allow them to be human beings. You know, when uh, I used to teach modules on slavery, uh, when I taught uh, anthropology courses, like, uh, you know, this is anthropology, this is uh, the history of humanity. And, you know, very often I think students made the assumption that, you know, it's to be like the black teacher, teach the history of slavery, and all the white people in the room would feel really bad, you know, about what their ancestors had done. And then we would go to the next module, you know. Mm -hmm. And instead, what we did was we laid it out as an exercise in the really challenging features of cultural relativism, which is to say, 
What would make it possible for a person to believe that it was all right to own a slave? What kind of mindset, right? What's your belief system? What's your value system? What's your upbringing? Uh, what are the ideologies that are at play? Could you argue the Christian Bible at the time? That's absolutely correct. That is correct. Um, that is part of what constructs modern slavery uh, in the Americas. Okay. So when you talk about what would life be like without the Christian influence into this country, you may have never seen the slave trade. And also uh, colonization. Mm. These are all possibly very, very Double-edged different historic right, yeah. moments. Sure. Um, when you can, instead of saying you have committed a, a horrible atrocity, you can say, why have you done these things? What has led to this happening? When you can look at Nazi Germany and try to understand what was happening amongst all of the people who participated, right? Then you can start to walk toward a process of reconciliation. Because if you're going to just sit in a seat of waving your finger, right, you were wrong. Like all of these people who participated are wrong. Yes, we could say that they're wrong, but this is still part of human history. We have to find a space of reconciliation because the only thing that hatred has the capacity to do is kill you and or others. That's all. It's not going to make it better. It's not going to resolve it. It's not going to solve it. You know, hatred has only the capacity to destroy. That's the only thing that hatred can do. It can build civilizations. They will not be sustained. You know, hatred is not a sustaining force. It is a devastating, imploding force. And the only way to move past that is through acts of radical compassion. You know, one of the most uh, tremendous moments of an act of radical compassion that I've ever seen is uh, a documentary about survivors of the uh, genocide in Rwanda. And What was the name of it? Do you remember? I don't recall the name of it. I've seen a lot of them. I'm, I'm, I'm going through the Rolodex, old school reference in my head uh, <laughs> with all the documentaries. I'm like flipping through, but. No. Yeah. So uh, it was a documentary about the reconciliation process and a woman had had her entire family murdered in front of her. You don't get over that. You do. She sat down and made a meal and shared a meal with one of the men who was a perpetrator in that crime. It doesn't mean she's over it. It doesn't it certainly doesn't mean <laughs> what that if she she's, poisoned it. <laughs> it doesn't mean that she's over it. It means that she's willing to make the process of healing. The step. You know, uh, another uh, I- astonishing example and I'm you know the gentleman's name escapes me but um he's a uh an Israeli citizen, a Jewish Israeli citizen and uh his son uh, had always wanted to have peace reconciliation with the Palestinians, you know, not so for himself, but this was what his son's political uh, focus was. This man lost his son uh, in a Palestinian uh, terrorist attack uh, within Israel. And he now goes into the Palestinian territories um, under great duress. You know, he's insulted. He's degraded. He's called names at town meetings. He's treated very unkindly most of the time. But he goes into these spaces to say there has to be a bridge 
between Israelis and Palestinians. We have to find a way to have a dialogue. He carries the work that his son did, even to these very same people who the hatred that he receives, that he hears in his face, is the same hatred that was responsible for taking his son. And he is so fearlessly willing to practice compassion that he takes all of that on for the possibility that one or two people in those audiences will hear his message and change their mind and want to try to work as well toward a state of peace. You know, this is the very, very small individual work that is within each one of our hands to do. And mushrooms bring that out in you. I know I really mean that. It's almost like a fast forward version, but you know, to the Middle East as you speak there, it's he's right because it's it's not like the powerful people there that are making the decisions because well the war makes people very very wealthy. And as long as they're selling weapons and blowing each other up, well the very few get very wealthy. And it's going to take a full radical compassion movement of the people of both sides to shut that down. So the powerful and the rich stop continuing that way and using them simply as pawns. I mean, that's what they're being used as, as pawns to perpetuate that idea. And, and it well, runs deeper. I know, know it goes I, yeah, further. I, I can only say that I'm not, uh, I'm not prone to theories about uh, what is happening in, in Israel and Palestine. Um, Are theories of solutions, though, of help? I... You know, honestly, you know, having lived in a Muslim country um, during the time of the Second Intifada al-Aqsa, um, I, my perspective is that those of us who do not live um, in the affected uh, areas and don't understand what it means to witness violence on a regular, everyday basis. Um, that I do. Yeah, that that our framing of the conflict should be really tentative. Um, I I think it's reasonable for us to you know talk about stories um, about what folks are doing to try to make it better, but in terms of you know the cause, um, you couldn't say propaganda powerful people in religion. I mean, that's pretty much the start of most wars or some assassination or some woman, <laughs> or I mean, go as far back as you want to. I mean. But don't we, from a scientific perspective or a social research perspective, yes, we like facts, but it's hard to find facts, and we don't want to, what, use theories to shoot facts, but have facts to shoot theories, or one of those reverses. But it's not, I don't think it's judgment to say, to stand on the outside and wonder what could end a conflict, or what may perpetuate, because like you said, when you spoke to the individual, what is it they need? And then you meet the individual with what they need and develop that custom path. And so I think over there, it's the idea is what do they need? And so I think offering maybe a solution from the outside, I think to say, wouldn't it take a radical compassion change of the people as an entirety from all sides, all tribes, because there's hundreds of them. That's true. Wouldn't it take a radical compassion for all of those people to outnumber the few that perpetuate with the money that they do, with the with the religion that they do, with the beliefs that they do? Well, it doesn't have to be money either. It can be many other things. Uh, you know, I mean, 
I don't see it as too bad as to maybe, yeah, they, there's a thousand reasons they could be going on and it perpetuates mm-hmm. and it was someone else's death. It was the loss of a son, right? But this man who you spoke about chose not to perpetuate it that way and chose to use it for almost a humbled power, very close to Jesus almost, right? That same idea, that story of walking through the trenches. Well, this is, you know, the really um, beautiful thing about uh, Jesus Christ is that he, uh, his um, mythology or presence, you know, depending on your belief system, um, gives us the opportunity to understand the essence of the spirit of uh, love, the essence of the spirit of radical uh, compassion, right? So find a place, find a place in the Bible where Jesus Christ is practicing judgment it doesn't and also it's very difficult to find a place to where he's praying in large groups when i talk to people and i see them and and i'm not saying it doesn't help we've had science that almost can prove some of that stuff can work too to a to an idea making people feel better etc so and i'm not one to say it doesn't no one knows honestly you can say it does research can show it's placebo or it does help or it can work but um, to reference back that third place that I talked about body brain. And you said like a social unity is where we're headed. I personally think the thing on the way is spiritual. I think that emergence is coming back. That idea of something greater than ourselves and existence of one spiritual to me is an idea of love and a, a united one. And so for me, that third one, once we learn, and I think and really function our, our strength of the brain, that era we're in now, you know, uh, and connect the brain and body. I think the only connection that's left is that spiritual piece. And that's what's missing is that spiritual humility, that idea of the acceptance that Jesus and Muhammad and other uh, have stood for and have shown in some fashion or in some way um, is, is powerful, you know, into that sense. And, and the expression of the judgment uh, I skipped over, but a lot of times in, in the Bible, he's praying alone in nature. He goes away on top of a mountain, goes in the woods, right? Maybe with someone, mm-hmm. right? But you rarely catch him in a church or in giant numbers holding a bunch of hands praying. You, you, it's, it's a personal relationship, I think he talks about the, developing. So, you know, I think, and you're probably getting a pretty clear sense uh, by this point that I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just absolutely resistant to know that's wrong, you know? And so... Um, no, what's wrong? Co- Anything, you know, when it comes to a religion, you know, it's valuable to people. It's, yeah, I wasn't, it's, it's, was I calling something wrong? Well, it's, you know, this sort of strain um, that we have now, you know, in public conversation where it's like cool to be really spiritual, but it's not very cool to the be spiritual is vague as shit anyway. Um, you know, I just, uh, one of my favorite authors is Christopher Hitchens, who is like an intense atheist. And uh, he uh, says that, uh, you know, parents who raise their children in uh, religions are, um, you know, guilty of child abuse, brainwashing. You know? Sam Harris argues the fact that it's immoral to be Christian or religion to a point or think that you talk to God and no one else. You know, and um, I could not uh, disagree more. But nonetheless, uh, he's one of my favorite authors. And for me, that's where the work is. You know, that's where um, the possibility is that I 
can read Christopher Hitchens and I can still take away lots and lots of pieces of knowledge, ideas, information, possibilities. There's different framings of uh, topics that I hadn't thought about before and disagree with his fundamental premise uh, about religion. I don't know if he could do that. He's passed away now, but um, I don't know if he would have been able to do that uh, with you know the work of someone like me. Uh, but you know what? That's okay. Um, whatever the box is, you know, you're Christian, I'm Muslim, I'm uh, Muslim, you're a Baha'i. I know you're interviewing a, a Baha'i gentleman tomorrow. Um, I'm a Jewish, you're a Buddhist. Uh, our religions are not the same, right? These are boxes. Uh, I'm a very religious and you don't have a religion. You have some kind of, you know, spiritual thing that doesn't have a clear formation i'm very spiritual and uh, you're an atheist and then what are we doing all of this is acts of separation and you know ultimately it's about individual accountability is what you are doing is the identity that you have decided to walk into is the life that you have decided to live is it fulfilling you is it making you well? Is it growing you as a human being? Mm-hmm. Is it expanding the wonder, the wellness, and the possibility of the people around you? And it's that simple. It's that simple, right? And when the answers are no, that's when you find people who are in states of radical dissatisfaction. That's when you find people who are in states of addiction. That's when you find people who are running around, you know, waving different kinds of identity flags, screaming vitriolic words, full of anger and hate and venom and disgusting, you know, of framings of other human beings. And when we're willing to let go of the separating mechanisms. These are constructed mechanisms uh, that separate us out from each other. And when we're willing to let go of the separating mechanisms and invest in how much do I love myself that I'm not willing to be reactionary. I'm not willing to risk a heart attack and anxiety and panic and distress to please you or judge you or hate you or, you know, uh, do something which I say is loving you, but which is actually hurting. You know, all of these falsehoods, when you're willing to just let all of that nonsense, madness, you know, craziness go and invest in where's my center of being well where's my center of growth it doesn't mean you're going to be happy all the time it doesn't mean you're going to be in a state of like perpetual joy uh anybody i know you like uh, psychedelics as a reference you know when you go on a psychedelic journey there are periods that will be terrifying there are periods that can be physically violent you know depending on what you've uh chosen um you can be expelling things you're throwing things up it's hard work uh, to go on a growth journey, whether that uh, growth journey is because, you know, you're doing psychedelics or it's because you've chosen to transform your life, you know, in a slow, 
uh, wait over a few months or a year or a few years. For most people, it takes several years to really change. And it's very, very difficult to get all the way inside of your extraordinary power and own it and claim it and be able to seize upon what it can do for you. But if you're willing to let go of this manufactured, man-made desire uh, to be better than to be separate from, to be right instead of, you know, I'm right and you're wrong. If we can let all these things go, stop biting the hook. Invest in your own oneness. The universe is already inside of you. You have an entire map of the universe in your brain. Believe that you are remarkable and then take that step-by-step journey. And again, you know, the tools for everyone are different. So you are providing people uh, with this ability to do a personal excavation and start uncovering themselves. And Michael Beckwith uh, refers to it as an unfolding. Let yourself unfold. It's already there in your core. You know, let it out. And it's uh, the responsibility of guides uh, to help people unfold. You know, I like to refer to myself as a student and a translator. You know, I'm immensely curious. And so I study all different kinds of traditions. I study all different kinds of uh, histories and mythologies, fields of science. Um, And as a student, I'm acquiring all of this knowledge and information. And so when I'm working with people, I can just get a sense of, you know, what is the knowledge and information that's going to help you right? Do your optimal transformative transition. And without judgment, you can take this and do what needs to happen for you. That's one hell of a cognitive rampage at the end. That is two rampages in two weeks that have come out so elegantly (laughs) and so kindly and full of love. Uh, You and I are going to turn into a pumpkin in four minutes and less than at three hours. Uh, that is the majority of the time limit that iTunes will let us put up that we set up for. So, uh, that shuts off in four minutes. We, we are done after that, but will you please come back? Absolutely. This was a really, really wonderful to have such a just rich and varied, a conversation. Yeah. I would keep going. Thank you for having me. Please. I mean, I would keep going. I mean, I have chicken scratch notes here of things to keep going. There's so much I wanted to expand on. Um, I, I really did. It seems at times we say the opposite, but the same thing. And, you know, that third piece that's coming, you know, I spoke to of a spiritual enlightenment of some sort, and you spoke to it of a social connection. I've also heard the idea that lo- what love is, is when we all come together and that creates something powerful and spiritual. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like we're, again, we're both saying the same thing that what's coming is this. Yeah radical compassion that explodes some sort of social spiritual fire that maybe uh i don't know changes everything and next time we talk i want to go further into your childhood that you very uh elegantly sidestepped uh, multiple times but dropped a few things in there about losing people and those tough things and Congratulations. You uh, ducked some of the tough questions of your history and upcoming with myself. I uh, lost this round. (laughs) And uh, I will cultivate your past and the dark times that you experienced that you left out on purpose today. I I could feel some of those as you 
got to them. I saw tears sometimes. I saw avoidance. I saw look over here. And um, there's deeper in there I need to go. I don't want to go. I want to learn more. I want to soak more of that up, if uh, you already said. So, I mean, I'd love to see every 30 days here, to be honest. I'd like to make you a member of the cast team. Um, we have a very uh, wide range of people that are cast members. So, if you would, though, take the last, uh, before it hits three minutes, put your website, the love out there, um, to anybody that wants to find you. You can uh, find me at Inspiring World. Dot com, and you can find yourself by sitting down, taking a deep inhale, smiling, letting yourself exhale, and just be willing to be present with who you are as you are. Thank you. Oh, you better look her up. Um, I, I hope uh, you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did. Uh, I took the notes. I, I love this. I enjoy this. Uh, I'll end up adding an outro to this, but... Um, I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. And, you know, I think what I noticed is a strong connection because what her parents went through early and what they created had to take some kind of bravery and pure acceptance of others despite the attacks. They knew the attacks would come and parents did that anyway and they made it and they made her. And I think a lot of that is what created that bravery, that drive to push people to love and accept radically and push that radical compassion and change. But uh, I love you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. Well, I love all of you out there, and I hope you're taking care of you and living your cognitive rampage. The book comes out Friday, y'all. Love you. <laughs>